0: It's Nimrod! You mean that itty bitty soup can? Give me five seconds.
1: And they all gathered together. They're all of one language. They went to the plains of Shinar and they hung out with a guy by the name of Nimrod who decided to build a tower whose top may reach in the heaven. Well, first thing we should note is that the tower was built in a valley. So they clearly weren't, weren't concerned with height. God doesn't seem to be concerned with height either. He didn't freak out when we built the World Trade Centers or the Empire State Building or anything. So, what was going on with the Tower of Babel? I believe it was actually an interdimensional portal that they were trying to create because it says they were trying to reach into heaven. And apparently, whatever they were trying to do, God said, He looked down and says, Now nothing that they imagine to do will be restrained from them and he decides to go down and confound their languages so whatever they're trying to do apparently it was at least possible and if you look at the extra biblical text that the jews were very familiar with they say that nimrod had essentially had divided the people up into three camps and the three camps basically in a nutshell their intention was to make war with god conquer heaven kill god and set up their own gods in the holy of holies in heaven that was their plan and at least in theory it possibly may have been possible that god decided to mess up their plans and he divided the, the nations up into 70 people groups. There were 70 languages that went out. And Nimrod here says, Began to become a mighty one in the earth. The phrase mighty one is a very interesting Hebrew word. It's gabor, gaborim. I believe you have to interpret that in context with whatever is being said around it. Because it could mean, just like it says, mighty one, David had his mighty men. I don't believe David's mighty men were giants from nephilim because they were busy killing giants in nephilim. <laughs> Uh, And they were on the good side. Uh, But in this case, I believe Mighty One could also be translated, as it is in other places, as giant. And the reason I say that is because there's an awful lot of things associated with Nimrod that we'll see in a minute. You are tuned in to God's Property Radio. Here are your hosts,
2: Sam and Dan.
0: Welcome to God's Property Radio. I go by Sam. And I go by Dan. And this is episode number Fifteen Nimrod One Hundred One, Part One, with Mister Rob Skiba. Yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> why don't you, Why don't you go ahead and just say a little something about Mister Skiba? Because I know that as I was coming into my paradigm shift through uh, Leonard Alrich's film, you. Grasped onto Skiba's material on the Nephilim, and that really opened up your eyes. So why don't you just go ahead and say a few words about Mr. Rob Skiba?
2: Yeah, we talk a little bit about that in the in the episode here with Rob. Um, as if you've been listening to us from the beginning, you'll know that um, uh, we we really wanted to talk to Leonard Ulrich, which we got to do from the beginning. Leonard was a big part of getting us started, and then Rob was the other person. Well two out of the three people that we really wanted to to talk to and we got the opportunity to do that it was a a big big deal for me and rob if you're listening you're probably going like dude he's a total groupie that's weird (laughs) It's (laughs) it's not the point but um uh we we had a great conversation um i really like i definitely i could tell it from rob's materials but i can definitely after talking to him i really function on a similar wavelength as rob um, in, in, in the way we approach the Bible. And it was just, it was a really fun conversation. I got to edit this one and I'm, I'm editing through it and I'm, I'm, I'm literally cracking up as I'm going through it, laughing to the conversation we're having. Cause I'm like, dude, I totally get that, you know, like, so, um, no, it was really good. As far as coming to my paradigm shift, um, Leonard's film is what started that, but it didn't, it didn't really shake my foundation the way it did Sam. For me, I Leonard's presentation was great. His material was good. I thought he was spot on, and in my mind, I'm going okay, so the world's a little bit more corrupt than what I thought. I mean, quite a bit, but it wasn't like earth shattering. Like I, it didn't really surprise me that there were maybe to the degree that there were cultists out there that it surprised me in their control. Um, and truthfully, I didn't really understand all of the amount of control at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was just kind of like, okay, you know, Leonard's in contact with the scripture. He did a great presentation. He's spot on. I agree. But it wasn't like, you know, I, I'm freaking I got to tell everyone. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, right after my daughter was born, Sam and I went to the good old NYC there. Yes, we don't live in New York City. If you've been trying to figure out where we live in New York, it's not on the tiny island. Okay. Got a lot more miles to cross. But anyhow, um, we we went down there to pick my brother in law up from the airport. Uh, he was coming home from a break. He was a missionary in the Dominican Republic at the time. And on our way down, Sam had Leonard Ulrich's and Rob Skiba's interview that Rob did with Leonard. The first and one. The, the first one. First one from... And it was fantastic. I mean, these guys, they they hit it off. Um, they are Again, they really just operate on a similar wavelength with each other, and um, just really good pals is what it you know it sounded like. Just had a great discussion. What we try to do with our guests, and um, well, I got home. My brother in law was home. I didn't really have time to go looking into anything right then, so I didn't. Well, right at the end of my brother in law's visit, my daughter is at this point, mind you, like three weeks old. Sam sends me two links for youtube of rob's mythology and the coming great deception and the mount herman roswell connection mind blown i mean oh, wow okay first off mythology and the coming great deception let's talk about nimrod okay yeah um and who he is and or who he was uh, who he is not and who he is going to be again. And yes, I kind of waved a little verse, weaved a little verse in there. The Bible actually says, uh, he is the one who was, yet is not, yet shall be again. When talking about the Antichrist, I believe in Revelation, it may be Matthew 24. No, I think it's Revelation. And wow, I mean, just mind blowing on all of this. And for me, that was a big in and that blew my world apart because to, to me as a Bible student being raised in the Baptist church, that was something I'd never even heard. I never even been told, you know, the most I heard about Genesis six. Oh, oh yeah, it, it really was angels mating with humans, but you know, it's in the past and just left it there. Dude, that's a major key component to the Bible. It really is. Like, we're, we're going to talk about this in the episode, but, you know, there's a reason God killed all the Canaanites, and it wasn't because they were amoral. It was because they were an abomination to <laughs> mankind. They were not human, okay? Difference. Right. All right? They, yeah, anyway. Yeah, so. so but it just, that was, that robs material, and then the Mount Hermon Roswell connection, this blew my mind open, and the other aspect of because one we have the Nephilim, two now we're talking about aliens. And I'm as as I'm watching that presentation the first time I'm going again. Okay, first one was really good, but aliens, I mean, really, I I I love sci-fi as much as the next guy, but I'm thinking to myself, dude, no, <laughs> this this is crazy. There's no such thing as aliens. If God made life on other Earth, uh, on other. A life on anything other than earth that didn't matter you know he didn't tell us about it so it's not important and yada 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 and all this experimentation stuff is a bunch of people tripping on their mushrooms or something you know <laughs> and he presented that and i'm listening i'm going okay okay i guess i can he's presenting some good evidence but the fact that at the name of jesus that these things run started a change in my theology and my understanding of spiritual warfare that is paramount if you're a christian if you really want to understand how the how your spiritual walk works you need to understand spiritual warfare and i as you guys know i was trained to be a pastor i did counseling for years since high school i discipled and counseled people And, you know, I could work and work and work with someone. And we might have even discussed this in Russ's episode with Russ Distar, episode 12. But some of them, no matter what we tried, no matter how much discipline, how much accountability, they couldn't get free. You know why? Because there was a spiritual force at play there with them that I didn't know about. And Rob was the beginning of that for me. If something runs at the name of Jesus, okay, well, hey, I know what that is. And it's not life from Octaurus or from the Pleiades, Okay. Or, you know, whatever, the, the galactic fleet, blah, 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 blah is out there. That's demonic. There's one thing in all creation that flees of the name of Jesus Christ, Yahshua, or Yahshua, or however you know you want to pronounce it. You know, that's demonic. That's fallen angel, okay? And for me, hearing that was like, okay, if they're running from it, this means, one, it's demonic. There's a lot to be said about what's going on Number two, because of the fallen angel thing, obviously, you know, if they're doing the experimentation, well, they're trying to recreate Genesis 6 in, in some way or form. Number two, it was earth shattering for me because that said, wait a minute, no, 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 no. That was, and I was Baptist, remember? So, you know, cessation of the gifts and all that, no healings, no prophecy anymore, no speaking in tongues, casting out of demons, those were all sign gifts. Back up, buddy. First of all, that really propelled me to go back and look at my Bible and go, dude, I was I was wrong. I bought into what I was taught. I didn't I haven't really studied this for myself. I just took their explanations. I didn't just read the Bible and the Bible interpret the Bible. Don't worry, does the Bible say that the gift you know these these gifts are over? That's a nice theory, but that's all it is, and it's one easily disproven. You have no evidence, you have no confirming witness, as Rob says. So for me Rob Skiba really brought in a part of the word and brought understanding to the part of the word is maybe a better way to put it that just shattered my world and that's when things started to open up my eyes. So as Leonard is to as Leonard is to Sam, so Rob is to me, mm-hmm. um, the person who um well, i shouldn't say just the person because leonard was a big i never would have found rob or listened to rob if it, it hadn't yeah, been for leonard but so but
0: at the same time i mean it was definitely but leonard. at the same time rob rob even like i didn't know about the nephilim mm-hmm. until rob right either so we both kind of came into that through rob yeah and that just mm-hmm. was a kind of a connection between leonard and rob it was mm-hmm. like boom boom and Leonard's going there. Leonard's going to be going there in Volume 4. But, it's going to be good, folks. It's uh, going to be so good. Dude, this next film coming out is going
2: to be good. And I have no problem talking about this on Rob's intro because, let's be honest, they're they're two good dudes. And just so you guys know, if you uh, haven't read Rob's first book, Babylon Rising, um, and the first shall be last, uh, look if you flip it over to the back... Uh, a recommendation for it about a paragraph long is from Leonard Ulrich. Yep. So I've got... Rob, Rob is fine with us plugging Leonard on on his episode. Yeah, here, so yeah. It's going to be good. Sam's got the soundtrack done. Yep. It's going to be... It's going to be rocking, man. And some really cool stuff potentially coming up with uh, Leonard and... Um, I'm just going to leave it there. We'll let it be a surprise if those things come to be. But um, you might have the opportunity to hear some uh, a lot of good information from leonard this this coming spring you might even get to meet him in person but we'll we'll see if that happens so
0: well regardless we'll definitely be doing some uh, interviews with oh totally man it's about totally. time about time to get some interviews with leonard again but anyway totally we're we're digressing on talking about mr rob here but uh so anyway yeah um
2: okay to summarize uh leonard was the key that opened the door to Rob, and Rob was the guy who um, gave me the magic glasses, if you will, or the one who the Lord used to really open my eyes. Um, so both of them, both of their ministries, God really used in in my life. Me too. Um, so okay, so yeah, that, that's Rob. This is just a rocking conversation. Look, if you're not a nerd, if you're not a trekkie, probably the first forty minutes for you is going to be like, what are these? These guys are total nerds, man. Like, what is going on? <laughs> you had, I, like I said, I was editing this thing together, and I'm, I'm just cracking up listening to us just talk about stuff and go at it. I enjoy. I, actually, uh, I really
0: enjoyed listening to Rob talk about comics because I love oh, comics, yes. and I love music, and I'm a total nerd, too. I mean, you should see my walls in this room here. I mean, it's decked out. So,
2: And a, a little sneak peek, and Sam remind me of this, for part two – I'm going to be asking Rob about CERN and the Hadron Collider and a television show that has come out just this year where a a, head, a Hadron Collider exploded and gave this character superpowers. Mm. So
0: anyway. Yeah, at that at this time we haven't recorded part two yet. So. We will be. We will be. So we don't need to mention that? So no, we, we need of, so. to
2: mention It's going to happen. I have faith. Okay. I'll make it happen.
0: Yeah, I mean... Uh, we haven't really touched, uh, the only time we've talked about the Nephilim was with Gonzo Shimura in our mm-hmm. sixth episode, and so I think what this is going to do is this is going to quell that hunger for all you guys who want to talk about the Nephilim and Nimrod. You know, we just wanted to do a, a nice long episode on this, so this is going to be a two-parter, and uh, enjoy, enjoy this first half, uh, Nimrod 101 with Rob Skiba. Here we go. This discussion is under the blood covenant of Yahshua, explicitly without prejudice and under reserve.
1: I grew up in a Christian family. My dad was a Baptist minister when I was a kid, and I ex- accepted Christ as my Savior at age seven and have been in some form of ministry ever since, uh, beginning with uh, vacation Bible school in my parents' front yard, <laughs> uh, which led, uh, you know, we, we had friends and everybody come over our parents' house and do the Vacation Bible School thing for the week during a summer vacation. Later in school, we created what we called the God Squad, and it was just a, about, about a dozen of us that were Christians that we met and prayed together uh, before school started, in, in, in a secular school. And then we had a Tuesday afternoon Bible studies. They, the school actually gave us one of the classrooms to use after. And yeah, so we did that, and then uh, a few of us joined the Army together, and that car- the God Squad carried into the Army. Uh, and then uh, started the drama ministry and was uh, actively involved in drama ministry for a while. And then became a missionary in uh, 2004 and d- went to over a dozen countries in six and a half years. And, uh, but in 2009, started getting the call to come out of that to create seed. Uh, It was sort of an idea that was seeded into my head uh, Mm -hmm. quite a long time ago, but uh, began to—it's like God began to water that seed in 2009 and started to sprout a little bit. And um, uh, he—I was afraid to leave my good-paying full-time job to go after this because I had chased a dream. Most of my life uh, before that, I mean, I, I saw Star Wars when I was seven. I got saved when I was seven. Both had a pretty profound impact on my young life. Uh, when I saw Star Wars, I knew right at that point that I wanted to be a filmmaker. It was like I made a public declaration at, at like seven, eight years old. I said I would either be an astronaut, a movie star, a filmmaker, or dead by the time I'm 30. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't like I had a death wish or anything like that. I just figured, you know, at age eight thirties like ancient history. You know, I mean, that's like, that's like, well, not really history. It's like way in the future. You know what I mean? It's like you're eight years old, you think 30. Wow. My reasoning was if I hadn't achieved any of those things by the time I was 30, it would be because I was dead. <laughs> uh, so I was a pretty driven person. I had a camera glued to my face uh, f- from a very young age, about eight and nine years old. I think I got my uh, eight millimeter camera and was always, uh, creating little scenarios with my friends and whatnot and using models and stop motion and all that kind of stuff and did a lot of filmmaking uh, at a young age and but i really wanted to be an astronaut so i did well in school and one of the reasons i joined the army in the first place was because i wanted to fly helicopters because that's how i had heard that the uh, astronauts had to train with helicopters to uh learn how to land the lunar landers so I thought, okay, well, I'll learn helicopters first, sort of follow my dad's footsteps. He was also a helicopter pilot in the Army. And then I would transition into the Air Force and fly jets, and then tr- through the Air Force jet program, go into the space program. And I was everything, I was all about that. And um, But four times trying to go to, I got through flight school in the helicopters and flew helicopters for six years. Uh, but every time I tried to go to the next level in my goal, something would get in the way. And it was always outside of my control four times. Uh, I, I was blocked from going in that direction. So finally I just said, okay, Lord, this is not apparently what you have for me. So, uh, I'll, I'll go back to my other passion, which is filmmaking and did a lot of corporate video and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and did a lot of acting, uh, a lot of theater and stuff and commercial work and stuff like that. Um, and that led to doing 10 years of corporate video. And, um, when I became a missionary, I was a multimedia missionary in 2004, uh, I got hired to basically get entrenched with missionaries all around the world, do what they do, help them, and, but to document it on video so that I could create videos that helped to create awareness and raise support for what they were doing. And I loved it. I was like, you know what? This is great. Um, it, prior to becoming a missionary, though, I had chased the dream of making movies. I'd written scripts, pitched scripts, um, had some really good opportunities uh, um, out in L.A. and out in New York. And... Literally got to within a signature of a seventy million dollar contract with Tom Hanks back in nineteen ninety nine. Really, uh, that fell apart. It wasn't related to movies. It was related to raising money for the National World War Two Memorial in Washington D.C. Um, and it wasn't his fault. It's just the, the deal just kind of fell through. And you know, um, it, but I had put every egg I had in that basket. <laughs> and, Uh, when it fell apart, I lost everything. I became, I had, I lost my business, went bankrupt, eventually lost the house, then came back from a six day business trip to my wife, uh, find out that she's left me and she's out sleeping with some other guy up in Maine. And like my whole world exploded. And I I basically ended up broke, homeless, divorced, bankrupt, and ready to put a bullet in my head in 2003. Um, thinking, all right, this is it. (laughs) And, um, that's how I ended up in Texas. I lived in Massachusetts for 33 years, but, um, my uncle who lived down here uh, found out what was going on with me and paid for me to come down to Texas to go through a a sort of a scripture-based self-help program called the Road Adventure which God used literally to save my life and put the pieces back together again Um, so that was all like 2003 and then 2004 that's when I got hired to be a missionary and and it was great man I loved it I love what I did I, I it was just amazing but It was right around 2009 where god said hey you want that dream back because i laid the dream down after all that mess you know i was like okay i've chased this my whole life it didn't work out so well um i i don't care anymore i want what you want lord i'm gonna lay this down it's yours i'll do whatever you want then he made me a missionary but then he said hey you want that dream back and i said no (laughs) he said uh well why not i said well lord cuz it hurt too much last time i i was going after that right and he basically said well that's cuz you tried it your way what if you did it my way right and i thought okay and now i had just had 6 years of doing it his way uh when i was a multimedia missionary uh it was it was crazy cuz i was just like okay everywhere i went i said okay lord i'm just your camera guy you're the producer you're the writer you're the director you just show me what you want me to shoot, and I'll shoot it. And, man, crazy cool stuff happened, just awesome stuff. And and all of that, he basically showed something to me that before that, I, I, I thought I had noble ambitions and uh, sort of my, my idea was I want to make movies for God. You know, it was kind of my attitude. But he had a different idea. He's, he basically wanted to make movies through me. And there's this huge difference between the two, <laughs> doing something for him and then letting him do it through you. It's just, there's a lot of difference there. And that's what he did with me for the six years I was a missionary, is I had just totally opened up and yielded myself to, to be the vessel that he used to produce some powerful videos for missionaries. And um, yeah, that was all training for me, basically. And uh, he's, he said, OK, you know, if we did it my way, it might be different. I said, OK, Lord, well, that's cool. And he said, remember some of these ideas that you've had for a while? I'm like, yeah. He says, why don't you develop those a little bit? So I started to work on an early draft of the first script for Seed in 2009. And it was, um, right about, I had just produced a video for the ministry that I was in and showed it in Cyprus. There was a missionary conference in Cyprus. Um, and we had gone to Athens and Greece, all through the area. And I had shown this video that i' done that I had done, and the um, the guy who used to do video for the organization uh his wife saw it, and she said, "You know you really should submit this for an award and i thought well i, I don't i don't care about that i mean that 's not why I do any of this stuff, but when I was looking for confirmation um, whether or not I should leave that full time job, I was trying to think what would i what would I want for confirmation and I saw on my desk there was Uh, the brochure that this person gave me in Cyprus. And so I pulled it out. It was a week before the deadline. And I thought, you know what, okay. Lord, if you're really calling me out of this good-paying, full-time job ministry with benefits (laughs) to go after ideas scribbled on a napkin, um, you got to confirm this for me because I don't want anything becoming just out of my head. It's got to be you. So it was for the Telly Awards. And the Telly Awards are uh, the corporate equivalent of the Oscars or the Emmys. Oscars are for movies, Emmys are for television, tellies are, are the corporate equivalent made by the same company. So was a pretty big deal. So I I told my wife I said you know I'm I'm, I'm praying for confirmation whether or not I should go after it. She was all for it. She's like you should go you should, you should go after your dream. She'd read my scripts. She really believed in me but I was you know very hesitant and she's like alright well if that's what you want for confirmation we'll pray over it. So we did and I ended up winning two telly awards uh, which, which was crazy. I mean, it's like winning two Oscars. And, and the one that I, I was a first place and a second place, the one that I got first place, uh, was for, um, animation in a video. And I was going up against like Pixar and stuff, you know? Wow. So dude, uh, I took that as a massively huge confirmation. Um, but then I didn't do anything about it. I'm like, you know, great. You know, I got these two telly awards. This is pretty awesome. Um, but I had this full-time good paying job with benefits and a lot of security you know and even though the Lord did everything he could to confirm he wanted me to step out I was afraid to well he turned the heat up made it extremely uncomfortable for me to continue working where I was and it just became very unpleasant and um, and it was right after uh, Christmas 2009 um, that Delta Airlines sent me an email saying, "Hey, you've been traveling all around the world. You got a lot of Sky Miles. You better use them, or you're going to lose them if you don't uh, use them by the end of 2009." So I'm like, "Huh." Now I had just written it, uh, an earlier draft of uh, script one of Seed, and there's a scene where my character ends up in the desert, two hours north of Tucson, Arizona, and the only reason I found that location is because that would look it looked cool on Google Earth. <laughs> I, I just I saw a cool location on Google Earth, and I'm like, huh, that looks interesting. So I I wrote it into the script. So when Delta said, hey, we'll we'll give you, you know, basically free airfare wherever you want to go, I told my wife, I said, you know what, I think maybe I'll take Delta up on this and go location scouting. I'm going to go to this weird location out in the desert. And she said, yeah, go for it. So I, I got the email on a Monday, and I was on a plane on Wednesday, and I ended up spending five days alone with God in the desert two hours north of Tucson. Uh, that was i 'm telling you it was Abraham Moses crazy type experiences out there um, where he just did some w- just amazing things and my normal creative writing pace is three to five pages a day. Um, I came back from that trip and wrote seventeen pages and a half a day and outlined seventy two episodes for a six seasons TV series called seed and there was no question i I got a download. I mean it was like he plugged a USB cable on my head out there and boom, here it was so um, and that was a decision maker uh, that trip uh, I knew that when I came back from that trip, I would have a decision whether or not I was going to leave the the ministry to go do what we 're doing now and He confirmed in so many crazy, cool and amazing ways that I came back in no uncertain terms and said well here here 's the deal guys i i I know I'm being called out. I've got to leave. So they gave me a 90-day extension, um, and then let me go. It was April 1st, 2010 that we stepped out. It's sort of like the scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the third movie. He's going after the Holy Grail, and th- he comes across this chasm, and he's doing this riddle thing, and the riddle said, take a leap of faith. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know, I can't jump across this. you know. And he takes a deep breath and kind of steps out and lands on the invisible platform. Well, that's exactly what happened for us. And, uh, I have to say God really, I mean, literally carried us for almost three years where just crazy things happened. All our bills got paid somehow. I mean, We didn't have anything, had zero. We stepped out combined. Both of us, my wife and I were making about six figures, uh, with benefits and everything and stepped out into nothing, just zero. Wow. <laughs> and, um, you know, and still had our apartment and our cars and all the other bills that we had when we were making that kind of money. Um, but he carried us for three years, and I realized, okay, I can either make because I'm not going to write all 72 episodes of Seed. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to hire writers, and you know, have, a, have all the names you see at the end of a TV series. I got to have those people too, you know. So I figured, well, I could either make them read and study everything that I've read and watch everything that I've read or, or saw and everything that I've listened to. Um, for the last 20 years, or I could try to distill all that information that's forming the nonfiction foundation upon which the science fiction of Seed is being built uh, into some resources, and so that's where I started making. Uh, I started doing presentations. I did the mythology and the coming great deception was the first one, followed by the Mount Herman Roswell connection, um, and and actually I got to back up a little bit because. Uh, 2010, December 21st, 2010. Everybody was talking about December 21st, 2012, the Mayan calendar and all that stuff. Um, and you know, like everybody else, I was looking into it and doing research on it and speculating about what could happen. Um, but December 21st, 2010, two years prior, uh, my wife and I were out for a walk. We we're both late nighters, so it was like t- uh, two o'clock in the morning. We we're walking around our our apartment complex and at Two 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 in the morning, I look up and I see the the moon, the full moon, is turning blood red, and it stayed blood red for seventy two minutes, and that was interesting in and of itself. But the location of it really caught my attention because I'd already done all this research for the mythology, coming great deception, uh, regarding Nimrod, and Nimrod, of course, the scripture calls him the mighty hunter, and the uh, constellation of Orion is the mighty hunter of the sky, right, and. Um, this blood-red moon is floating over the shoulders of Orion looking like a decapitated head. And when you study the history and the mythology and whatnot uh, around Nimrod and the various characters that he's been known by, um, you'll see that he was beheaded. So I'm, I'm like, this is significant. I don't know exactly what this is about, but I know that something's going i got to get back home. So we went home, and I come to find out that while it's nighttime here, it's daytime over there in Iraq, and Iraq is at that time was announcing its fully formed government. Basically, Babylon saying, "Hey, we're back in back in business," and its founder uh, in the sky anyway, the representation of Nimrod, uh, has a decapitated head like floating over the shoulders as if it's going back into its place. You know, um, and as I'm doing, I got like fifty browser windows open on my computer. You know, I'm like Pfft, just researching like crazy, and there's this YouTube user named Dutch Sense. Who he likes to track uh, harp activity and uh, weather anomalies and earthquakes and stuff. Well, he was he was on live at the same time I was doing my research. He was freaking out because he had the internet seismic servers um, that track earthquake activity all around the world up on his screen, and he's doing a live recording of this, and he's freaking out and, because all of them are going in the black showing that literally the entire planet was shaking at that moment as Babylon was announcing its fully formed government and as the head of Nimrod was floating over the shoulders of Orion, (laughs) the the blood red moon. And I'm going, wow, this is something major is going on here and I got to start writing about it. Well, it was right after that that you had birds falling from the sky by the thousands, you had millions of fish beaching themselves all around the world, um, they added the thirteenth sign to the zodiac, which was Ophiuchus, and Ophiuchus, in the mythology, also known as Asclepius, was known for raising Orion from the dead and emptying Hades. So, um, that's I'm,
0: Asclepius. I'm,
1: yeah, Asclepius slash Ophiuchus. Yeah.
0: Wow, oh, I didn't know that. I did not. I had no clue about that.
1: Yeah, if you look up the thirteenth sign of the zodiac that they added, it was right after that event. Uh, that they added that it was Ophiuchus and Ophiuchus was also known as Asclepius, known for raising Orion from the dead and emptying Hades. He got so good at raising the dead that he emptied the domain of Hades, uh, or was beginning to empty the domain of Hades, such that the personality of Hades, Zeus's brother, was ticked off about it. <laughs> He's like, "Hey, you know, you got to do something about this guy here." So, uh, so the the myth goes, uh, he was cast up into the sky and became a constellation known as Ophiuchus uh also known as the serpent handler. So you know all this stuff's happening and uh I I just became a writing maniac. I just, I thought okay, I got to get this stuff out of my head. I I'm, I'm going to start writing blogs. My first blog was 72 in a red moon rising. And it was based on what I had observed that night. After I wrote 72 in a red moon rising, I realized that I think this is part of an omega plan, the end times plan. So the next blog I wrote was the omega plan. After I wrote those two blogs, I realized, okay, there's a backstory that I have to tell for all of where my head, what, what I'm thinking in my head for it to make sense to anybody, I've got to tell the backstory first. And that goes all the way back to the beginning of a seed war in Genesis three fifteen, first first prophecy in the Bible where God tells the devil that Eve's, uh, Eve's seed is going to crush his head. And of course the devil if he's if you're the one receiving that prophecy that Eve's seed's going to crush your head well what do you think you're you're going to do to her seed you know well you're going to mess it up so you know Cain kills Abel okay great uh, then they have Seth I don't believe Cain or anybody else was able to get the Seth so the devil has plan B turn the page Genesis chapter 6 angels mating with women creation of the nephilim and so I started writing about the Genesis 6 experiment segueing into the um, tower of babel the man of many names is one of the nicknames uh, are phrases that I give to Nimrod then the first shall be last was the next one after that and then I just I just kept writing and all I did for 2011 is wake up in the morning whatever was on my head I just started writing at the end of the year I decided to see well how much did I write so I pulled it down from web format into uh, Adobe um, InDesign to see what it looked like in print and found that I had over a thousand pages of printed content I thought, whoa, uh, okay, I got to turn these into books. <laughs> so um, the first book that was released uh, in, uh, I think it was January or February of 2012, was Babylon Rising and the First Shall Be Last. And after I published that book, I looked at chapter one, which was called The Genesis Experiment. And, and I thought, oh, man, I mean, it was like the shortest chapter in the book. I thought, wow, man, I got to elaborate on this chapter. So the, my second book, Archon Invasion The Rise, Fall, and Return of the Nephilim, Became a 366-page elaboration on Chapter One of the first book. <laughs> so, um, and then in the course of all that, I, just, I just continued doing conferences and turned those into DVDs. And next thing you know, I, I, we are literally traveling the world, um, as far away as South Africa, um, Canada, and all over the United States, doing conferences and talking about this stuff. And uh, once, once we sort of became a name out there that people recognize, that's when uh, the income started coming in and we went from living miracle to miracle to living blessing to blessing. And uh, that's where we're at right now. We're, with the books and DVDs and conferences, we are now making about the same amount of money as when we were, we're both full-time employed uh, working for the ministry. So, yeah, it's it's been amazing. And it's only like this year, uh, beginning of 2014, that okay, now the books and DVDs are basically paying the bills. Now I can go back to, I can turn the left brain stuff off for a little while, go back into right brain mode, get creative and start working on seed again. So we got our office here in Addison, Texas in January of this year. And um, we need 5.8 million to get started. It used to be 4 million, uh, but that's when I only had two scripts done and a partial third script. When I finished the third script, I thought, okay, the budget just went up. But um, you know what? It's not my problem. That's the executive producer's problem. That's that's <laughs> that's Yahoo's problem, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll just do my part. And I thought, well, I, I don't have 5.8 million to go into the live production of the TV series at the moment. But I do have the scripts. So what can I do with them with what I do have? Um, so we decided to modify them and uh, turn them into audio dramas. And we've produced a prologue and two episodes so far of the audio drama which have been very well received so far and have proven to be a very effective tool for me uh i went to la and had another amazing god trip where he just literally led me from one person to another uh to some executive producers and writers and directors and stuff like that out there and um so we're hopeful i've got some more following up to do to see what happens with all of those meetings but they were all very very positive meetings so um I'm I'm a little bit anxious, but not really. Uh, I'm at peace. I'm holding everything with an open palm instead of a clenched fist. So um, you know, it's all in in, in Father's timing. Uh, in the meantime, we just continue doing what we're doing, um, yeah. which is writing, producing DVDs, and doing conferences.
0: Right. So with with that series, Rob, um, in the in the end here, or not the end, but when you actually start to put those episodes out or seasons out. How do you intend, or what are what are you what are you hoping, or what kind of like outlet are you are you going for? Is this like a, a straight TV thing, or are you going to do this online, or is this going to be just like to DVD thing?
1: Right. Yeah. Well, as soon as I realized where the story was going, because um, I, I mapped it all out, I know the end from the beginning. Okay. Uh, so I know I know. I mean, I haven't written every little detail out, but I know the overall story arc and where
2: this where it's going. And have you guys seen the show Lost? Uh an episode here and there I would only ever seen of it. Yeah, if that's
1: all you saw you were lost watching Lost. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I never I <laughs> never
0: heard s- I never saw it, but I had a that is that, that's it's kind of like a reality show, isn't it? Or is it an actual drama?
1: No, it's a drama. Okay, so
0: yeah, I have no clue. I don't I haven't watched TV in so long.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, uh you know they they call star trek fans trekkies or trekkers you know um and star trek fans have their uh star trek conventions and all that stuff you know the sci-fi conventions and they get dressed up and get married in klingon and stuff you know um those those, those types of fans are rabid i mean they they love what their show you know um well you know, I was into the Star Trek scene. Yes, I've been to the Star Trek conventions. Yes, I have Spock ears. Yes, I have dressed up, and yes, I have acted with the actors from Star <laughs> Trek on stage before. <laughs>
2: Whoa, really?
1: I, yeah, I have. It's been cool. I, I uh, when I got out of the army, I like grew William up. Shatner. No, I didn't meet William Shatner. Um, I've met Nichelle Nichols and uh, some of the the. Uh, You know the other actors. I didn't meet Leonard Nimoy, William Shatner, or DeForest Kelly, but I met just about everybody else. And Spock's father, uh, Sarek, uh, actor Mark Leonard, uh, the the guy who played his father, I got to act on stage with him, actually, uh, doing a reenactment of a Star Trek episode, because I won first place for... I was the bad Spock from the Parallel Universe. (laughs) Oh, okay. So, uh, part of that, I got to share the stage with Mark Leonard, and hang out with him, and win all kinds of cool prizes and stuff, but so anyway, I mean, so I get that. I get, I get like sci-fi fans. They they don't just like their show; they love their shows. You know, oh yeah, they uh, live their show. That was that. They, they live, live their shows. shows. They do, man. I mean they get dressed up. They learn the languages. They you know, they build fan based websites and wiki sites, and you know, they they really get into it. And what the thing that's interesting about that genre, science fiction, is people go into it suspending their disbelief. So if you go in turning your disbelief filter off, that means you're open to believing whatever the filmmakers want to tell you and that's how somebody like Gene Roddenberry was able to put forth a secular humanist perspective uh, all over the world, you know. Uh the, the, and you can that type of venue affords you the opportunity to make social, religious, political commentary and nobody cares. You know, it's you can say anything just about, you know, so uh, I think it's it's probably the most effective genre for, for bringing forth a message, whatever the message is that you want to bring forth. Well, uh, I had never seen The X-Files. And it was one of those shows that everybody that I knew who knew me and the type of things that I was into, they were always telling me, Rob, I can't believe you're not watching X-Files, man. I mean, it's like right up your alley. I'm like, I know, but... It was always on at a time slot that I was never around to watch it, you know, uh you know this is back before Netflix and Hulu and all that stuff, yeah, yeah, so you, you know you had to be home at eight central on you know or Eastern time on Sunday or whatever day it showed, you know, and I was never around, so i never I never saw it well, when I moved to Texas in two thousand and three, uh, you know, like I said, I was broke, homeless, divorced, bankrupt, and living in a Dodge Stratus with everything I owned in. it. I literally lived in my car for a period of time. Uh, Until I finally got my feet on the ground. And when I got this little single bedroom apartment, I had hardly anything in it. um, My sister sent me season one of the X Files uh, box set, DVD box set, you know. And I was like, oh, cool. So I got a little uh, 19 inch color TV with a DVD built into it, you know. Um, And I I started watching X Files. They had like four episodes per disc. And I got hooked like immediately. I'm like, wow, this this is cool. Now I know why everybody wanted me to watch it. Well, when you watch it on DVD, you you start to notice things you probably wouldn't notice if you're watching it week to week. And right. one of the things I noticed is there's a sort of a formula that they followed. Not always, but most of the time. You'd have the weird, freaky thing happen first, then the opening title credits, first commercial break, come back for Act One. In Act One, usually there was this five-minute exposition piece where Fox Mulder uh, would Say, set the stage for the episode. You know, such and such a weird, freaky thing happened in such and such a podunk town in uh, Georgia in 1975, whatever. Um, and I noticed this pattern, so I thought, "Huh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Google the keywords from the five minute exposition piece of Fox Mulder." And so I did, and not always, but more often than not, I found the true life, real story that the fictional episodes, you know, that were based on. So. Not only did X-Files become something enjoyable just from a purely entertainment perspective, but it also became a new adventure in research and finding out weird and freaky stuff, you know. So I, I really enjoyed that. And when Lost came out, I, all my friends and people that I knew that were watching it, they reminded me of Star Trek fans because they were all crazy, you know. <laughs> they all like all about lost, having Lost parties and, you know, and I'm like, oh, you guys are just as geeky as I ever was, you know. Um, but I didn't understand it because if you don't watch Lost from episode one, every episode, you're lost watching Lost. You can't pop into it in, you know, episode 10 of season three. You're totally- Yeah,
2: it's really confusing. Totally lost. I, I have friends who, like with you, they said that I'd love the, you love the X-Files. They kept telling me, Dan, you'd love Lost and I just, I've never gone back and- uh,
1: well, let me say this, you'll, I think, really enjoy the first three seasons. Season four starts kind of taking a turn. You're like, eh, you hang with it. Season five, you hope it's going to get better. And season six, it tanks totally. <laughs> uh, which was really disappointing because I was, by the time when I finally did get the box set of, of season one, um, yeah, we, my wife and I would watch all four episodes on a disc. You know, <laughs> there's no way we could just watch one episode uh, because J.J. Abrams was brilliant. He followed what I call the comic book Model of storytelling, and what I mean by that is, back in the uh, early '90s, they uh, DC Comics killed Superman and they broke Batman's back. Uh, and I knew I wasn't a comic book collector at the time, but I knew that those would be collectors' items. So I bought all the episodes that led up to that storyline, and then all the episodes that led to the resurrection of Superman and the uh, healing of Batman. Um, and I had them packaged up in plastic and stuff. So, but I, but I also read them. And th- what happens is, you, okay, you're interested in whatever the story is that they're telling. And let's say you're, you're reading Superman. And as you're reading Superman, um, all of a sudden the Green Lantern pops in, says something really cool, and then zips out. And there's like an asterisk next to whatever he said. And you look down at the footnote. It sees it says see Green Lantern back issue episode eighty four. You're like crap, that sounds cool. So you go get that episode and you're reading that and as you're reading Green Lantern episode 84, the Flash comes in says something really cool, zips out, there's a footnote, see Flash, you know, and you're like oh man. So what happens is you're reading a cool story that always has some sort of reference to something in the past and the episode leaves on a cliffhanger. Well that's how you get people hooked. Because Because now you're going back to find all the back issues of the stuff that looks cool, and it's never-ending because there's always somebody popping in with an asterisk. (laughs) And I was spending $35 a week on comic books after that. Uh, I mean, I just got totally addicted to them. Uh, And that's what they do in Lost. Lost has a cool episode that's taking place in real time, but they're always making flashback references to something that happened before, and every episode's ending on a cliffhanger. And that's what hooks people. So, I'm I'm watching all this stuff not only for the entertainment value but also for the formula. Why are these shows successful? Why do people? Why did X Files go for nine seasons and you know a couple movies and all this? And and so I basically formulated seed to I pitch it as Lost meets Battlestar Galactica wrapped up in an X File
2: because you're going to have <laughs> which just sounds awesome it, even it though does, I never man. got lost that it just awesome. sounds awesome
1: <laughs> well thank you because I was influenced by all of those shows it, you know you have the the sci-fi appeal of shows like Battlestar Galactica like the the reboot that they did in uh, 2004 I think it was uh, I I loved it and I was watching I watched all four seasons of Battlestar at the same time as I was watching on DVD the Lost and and of course, uh, Battlestar ended on uh, after four seasons. Lost went for six seasons. Well, I was very satisfied with the story arc of Battlestar Galactica. I thought that they wrapped it up. I thought that they knew the end from the beginning. They carried the storyline well. There wasn't there was a few loose ends, but for the most part, they tied them up. And I was satisfied with the end result. Whereas Lost, I was completely disappointed by the end result. So that's when I realized, okay. I've got I've to do what they did with Battlestar. Otherwise, I'm going to tick off a lot of people you know, who might get excited about the series. So I'll have the alien a- agenda, you know, government conspiracy themes that made X-Files popular, along with the sci-fi appeal of shows like Battlestar and Star Trek, and the mystery and intrigue of a show like Lost. All of these things are going into SEED. Now, your question, where is this going to be aired? When I started realizing where this story is going and what I want to tell... Um, I, I immediately knew I could not do this through a network because I don't know about you, but I've gotten hooked on a lot of TV shows that get canceled prematurely.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh yeah.
1: You know, it's like they, they end the show on a cliffhanger, uh, you know, season
2: two. And then, and then they it's can't like cancel. bye.
1: Yeah. And you're like, ah, what are you doing? Oh uh, you
2: yeah. Can't... Like Jericho, for example, oh, which Jericho you turned us on to. That was an awesome show by
1: the way. Loved Jericho. San- Jericho. Uh, you ever see the 4,400?
2: wait is that i've seen all the episodes
0: 4400 oh no is that a different show i'm sorry show okay no no. i've not i've never heard of that
1: oh that's a way cool show um i think that's on netflix or hulu you can probably catch it it's called the 4400 the premise of the show is that since 1947 roswell new mexico um 4400 people around the world have been abducted by aliens Um, And in 2005, all of them are returned at one time on Mount Rainier in uh, Washington State. And so basically every episode, you know, you're dealing with people. Yesterday, for one guy, it was, you know, yesterday was 1972. You know, for somebody else, it was 1954. So they're dealing with, you know, being displaced in time. You know, they've they've lost so many years. Now they're here in 2005. But also, as this series progresses, these people start manifesting abilities, and, and really, if you're watching the show, it looks like they're manifesting, many of them, uh, many of the main characters especially, uh, are manifesting gifts of the Spirit. And you're like, is this, guy, is this producer? The, the guy who, who is the writer, director, producer is a guy named Scott Peters. And I'm going, if this guy's not a Christian, he definitely knows a lot about the Bible because he's putting a lot of, I mean, it's a secular show, but he's putting a lot of things in there that that preach very well, and so uh, you know. And then this that series, uh, I think four seasons and ended on a cliffhanger and they got canceled. Well, he went on. Scott Peters went on to do the reboot of V. Did you see the reboot of V? Yes,
2: loved I it. Loved
1: that uh, season two. Uh, Anna gets the bliss over everybody, and the priest gets the and, and the guy Joel Greck is the actor that played the priest. He's also the main character in forty four hundred. And that series got canceled on a cliffhanger. And so I'm like, here's two shows I loved, got hooked on, and they got canceled on a cliffhanger. And I thought, man, Scott Peters has got to really be bummed, you know? <laughs> um, and I thought, when I do produce Seed, he's my number one choice for a director. Uh, I, I put a choice of three guys, uh, uh, Jack Bender, well, Scott Peters first, Jack Bender, and um, Jonathan Frakes, who is Riker on Star Trek Next Generation. And, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, he went on to become... Uh, a, a TV and movie uh, director. So um, those are my three number one choices. Number one, though, being Scott Peters. Well, when I was in California a couple weeks ago, I met a, a Christian producer out there uh, named Dan Angel, who turns out to have worked on both X Files and Battlestar. <laughs> and uh, he and I really hit it off. We had a, in fact, you look up this guy's IMDb uh, resume, he's done like everything. Um, just a super cool guy, uh, a Christian. And uh, just amazing, and as I was showing him my business plan, I turned to the page that showed uh, who my choices were for a director, and he goes, "Oh, I like that." He pointed to Scott Peters, put his finger on there. He goes, "I got this guy, I helped get this guy started." I'm like, Really? He goes, yeah, hang on a second. He's still got his finger on Scott Peters' name on my business plan. As He grabs his cell phone, calls his secretary, and says, hey, can you get uh, Scott Peters' information for me? I need to give it to this guy I'm meeting with right now. <laughs> nice. Wow. So, I mean, this is what God's doing. This is, this is just a little teaser. Um, some of the things i got to follow up on. have not yet connected with him, uh, Scott Peters. But, um, uh, look, I'm one degree of separation from him. Before, I had no clue how to get to
2: him. Sure. So, the director of V. The- Wow. The
1: yeah, the creator of of the reboot of V and the 4400. He's he's my number one choice, because um, I think based on his prior work, not only is he a really good director, but I, he gets the content. He he would he, as soon as I sat him down in a room and showed him where I'm going with Seed, he would get it. Uh, I wouldn't have to explain much to him. So, but I know that I can't go the traditional route because. Just like he 's a perfect example, the networks are, are full of left brain bean counters that don 't care about the fans they don 't care about the story they don 't care about the series they don 't care about anything except the numbers and if they don 't get the numbers that they want, they pull the show, or they can censor you and control your content and so those are three big x marks in my book you know you 're not really going to censor right. me you 're not going to control my content and you 're not going to cancel me prematurely right so my only other option then is to do this. Um, myself do self-distribution well Netflix Hulu YouTube and Amazon Prime have really opened the doors to making that possible it dude is huge and and ev- everybody's going to internet anyway I don't watch uh, we don't watch TV anyway anything we watch are, are shows that are that I could pull up on Netflix or on on Hulu um, or you could go to ABC NBC CBS Fox sci-fi whatever go to their get the app for your iPad or whatever um and watch the show streaming in HD at your leisure when you want you know um and you know you're not locked into waiting for 8 p.m. on you know Thursday to watch your show you can watch it whenever you want so and now TVs are all shipping with internet connections anyway so it's like what? why wouldn't I go that route yeah so, we really in addition to doing a self internet distribution model we also really want to be completely self-financed within the first season and uh obviously we need 5.8 to get started that's to shoot the first 3 episodes all at once
2: and where s- are you on that for your first season um how much how much have you find do you have already
1: oh uh, we not much <laughs> uh we had almost 20,000 um but then with the trip to California and all the the audio drama and all the equipment and the office that I'm in sitting in right now, and all that that that's that's dwindled down quite a bit uh you know in the last ten months um but that's okay that got us where we where we are now uh the other guy another guy that I met when I was out there uh just raised uh, over a hundred million for a project uh that he's excited about becoming possibly my executive producer for seed. And I'm like, well, if he can raise 100 million, million is the catering budget. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, so uh, I've got a letter of intent out to this individual right now. Um, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, he so far so good. He's on board. Um, and if that's the case, then if we can raise the 5.8 million, that shoots the first three episodes. It helps us to build the online infrastructure for the internet distribution model, and. Um, uh, we're going to need money for advertising, marketing, and everything to drive people to the site. So, and once we get going, I really want to see. Honestly, I want this to be crowdfunded. Um, and there was a movie I just saw recently on Netflix called Iron Sky, that's a sort of a, a B movie science fiction. The premise of the film is after World War II, a lot of Nazis went to the moon, <laughs> they set up a moon base up there, and now they're coming back to rule the world. So. You know, it's it's
2: it's it's they got the concept anyway.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's it's B movie, you know, science fiction, but production wise, uh, the production quality was every bit as good as Independence Day or any other movie like that. Um, And and it was completely crowdfunded. In fact, if you watch the uh, credits at the end of the movie, they're like to everybody in Australia, and they put all the names. Everybody in New Zealand and all the names. You know, so you're watching like tons of names going by. But what I love about that is all the control is in the filmmaker's hands, you know, and the fans are just saying, you know, you get a little bit from a lot. And it's like, look, if you want to know how that principle works, go find a local, you know, if you've got a tollway near where you live, go sit there next to the toll booth and watch how many cars are going through an hour, paying, you know, a dollar or 75 cents or whatever the toll is. And you'll see millions of dollars going through that thing a little bit from a lot. So if we can get a little bit, from a lot and our our subscription package starts at three dollars a month which is less than the cost of a coffee at Starbucks it's like okay um if we can get 300,000 people which is nothing in the science fiction world giving thre- three three dollars a month that's our episodic budget because our episodic budgets are estimated about a a million dollars per episode to be at the same level of production quality that you're used to seeing on you know mainstream networks so, so the same uh,
2: quality as V or anything new like that that's been really sorry the same quality as the V reboot series or (laughs) or anything newer
1: yeah exactly it you if you put seed right next to V or the event or um, you know any of the shows that are out there right now fringe you know fringe actually had about a three million dollar budget but um, I I still believe if we did it here in Dallas um, it's a right-to-work state for one thing which means we don't always have to pay union scale Um, there are a lot of ways that we can cut current corners and still get the production quality that we want for about a third of what it would cost to do it out in la and maybe a little less than what it would cost to do it in vancouver um when i was in south africa i actually went to the studio that made um district nine and uh they loved seed they were like damn this is great um, and they said they would do post-production on the project for free if we could raise the production bu- uh, budget. So, um, you know, these are all, this is, you know, it takes money to make money, so the, 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 the almost 20,000 that we raised, we've got a number of subscribers already. We haven't even produced anything. People have just heard me on radio shows and conferences and stuff talking about it, and you know, have gotten behind us. And, um, you know, every, you know, you think, well, what's $3? Well, when 300,000 people are given $3, three it adds up to an episodic budget. Um, we don't have that many yet at the moment. We've got a few dozen, but it's enabled us to do what we've done so far. So I'm like, well, I mean, if we could do that with nothing, imagine what we can do when we have something. Um, so that's where we're at. We're, we're, you know, hoping to make this a grassroots effort it will be completely self-financed and funded. by the time we get through season one, between advertising revenue because uh, we'll have ads both on the site, static ads as well as commercials in the in the project. And if we can substantiate the numbers, the volume of people hitting the site, I've had over, uh, I think I'm at 1.2 million that have hit my seed website so far, and I don't haven't done anything. So, I'm like, if we can substantiate the 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 numbers. Hitting the site, then we can charge more for advertising. So between advertising, subscription, you know, and all kinds, there's several ways to to make money on it. We hope to be a, a completely self-financed, self-distributed um, um, engine running on its own. That way, nobody's going to censor us, nobody's going to control our content, nobody's going to cancel us prematurely, and we can tell the story that I believe has been downloaded into my head um, by God. And this is one of those things, you know, it sounds kind of crazy when you say it, but look, I can't make this stuff. I'm not. I'm a creative guy, but I'm not as creative as, as the creator. And some of the stuff that he's put in front of me, I'm going, wow, Lord, that's just amazingly cool. Um, and if we're able to produce it the way we want to, then I, I, we want this to be a secular TV series. I'm sick of preaching to the choir. Christian filmmakers, I think, are missing the mark, in my opinion, because they always make movies that try to go from seed planting to watering to harvest in 90 minutes. And they're preaching in a venue where people are going to be entertained. You don't go to the theater and you don't watch episodic television to be preached to. You go to TBN if you want to be preached to or go to church. Um, And that's where I think Christian filmmakers are are totally blowing it. And what happened is uh, three movies came out kind of right after each other. It was Thor, the first movie. Clash of the Titans, and uh, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. And I happen to enjoy all three of those movies, and um, but they all have the exact same theme. And after I saw Thor for the second time, a lot of times if I enjoy a movie, I go back, the first time I just go to watch it for entertainment, the second time I go back to see, okay, why did I like it? What, what, what was it about the writing, the characters, the lighting, the film? You know, I'm looking at it as a filmmaker, second time around. And I came out of the theater, second time of seeing Thor, really frustrated. I'm like, God. I mean, here's three movies that all have the same theme. The son of God saves the world. But the problem is it's the wrong son of the wrong God. So I'm like, Garr! I'm like, you know, is fireproof the best we can do? I mean, really? Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, no, I don't mean to knock those guys. I mean, I think I think for what they've done, they've done a good job. But Let's face it, you know, Fireproofs is made for half a million dollars. It grosses $33 million, most of that coming almost exclusively from Christians. And Sony, who is their distributor... They paid Sherwood Baptist Church, I believe, it was just over nine hundred thousand. Thank you very much. They barely doubled their their money and paid their investors back. And then Sony took the other thirty three million or thirty two million and said, uh, "Okay, now we'll go make movies that completely contradict the message of your movie. <laughs> your movie's all about you know godly standards and marriage." And then they turn Sony turns around and produces Eat, Pray, Love, the virginity hit, and the Easy A you know, three terrible movies, none of which I've seen, but I know what they're about, Uh, they completely contradict the message. And yet scripture says, the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. But So why are the righteous giving all their money to the wicked? It's totally messed up. And and when I was like, God, what is the deal? And uh, he told me, this is just what I believe he said to me, is because you guys are doing it all wrong. I said, all right, Lord, well, how do you do it right? And I believe he said to me, you have got to become as good at telling the truth as the devil is at telling lies. Here's your homework assignment. Go figure out how the devil has captured this, this culture. And yeah. what I realize is he doesn't do what we do. We, we try to, like I said, we try to go for seed planting, the watering, and harvesting in 90 minutes. He doesn't do that. He, he plants little seeds over long periods of time and waters them over long periods of time until at the end he's got this massive harvest. That he's cultivated for decades. Um, he puts out an M M&M and M, and he watches. Oh, you like that? Cool. Here's a Reese's peanut butter cup. Oh, you like that? Here's a Twinkie. Oh, here's a pie. Here's a cake. Next thing you know, you're like completely obese and dying of you know all kinds of diseases and diabetes, and you're like, how did I get here? Well, one bite at a time, you know. And so that's why you know, Seed's not going to be just a movie. It's 72 episodes to tell to to go from seeding to watering to harvest over the course of a you know a, a, a whole series, to put forth a message that I believe needs to be told, and so much of that the the message is already out there in the nonfiction works that I've done with the books and the DVDs and stuff.
2: I think this has been really great to hear uh, a lot on what you're doing with seed and where it's at, uh, especially since we try to push it. It'll be really neat for our listeners to. Uh, get a little extra information from you there. Yeah, especially... Oh, thank you for that, but, by, the way. Yeah, by the way. Yeah, especially that,
0: that uh, information on your $3 package. You know, I mean, that's really easy to do. And I think a lot of our listeners that will be listening to this can probably jump on board with that. So okay. yeah.
2: Before we before we press on, first, I did not know you turned them into audio dramas. So yeah. you yeah. can guess what I'll be doing over the next <laughs> few
1: days. Yeah, in fact, if you go to the website, um, seattheseries.com, uh, let me go there now. Uh dot and of course on the, on the main homepage you got the the tree. There, are the sow and see. If you click on sow, that takes you onto the page where people can contribute and the various packages that we have that they can they can choose from. If you click on the C link, that takes you sort of into the the main guts of the website. Um, and if you scroll down to the bottom of that first page, you'll see latest news where it says uh, audio drama, and you click here to listen. That takes you to the audio drama page. And um, there you can see that there's a prologue uh, called The Bedouin Keeps Watch. That's just a, that's really, a lot of people want to skip that one. It's not all that exciting, but there's a lot of information in it. There's a, just,
2: <laughs> uh, it's one, like what you get in episode two with the asterisk, see the prologue. <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. Yeah, for sure. It, um, and then, of course,
1: episode one, the Argartha mission, and episode two, the cave. And with those, Three audio dramas right there. That really sets the stage for where the series is going. Um, And we're working on episode three right now. It's it's kind of been on hold a little bit because I've gotten so much good response from the from what I've done so far. And I'm like, well, I mean, if if this can be the tool that gets us to where we're doing the live action TV, then I'm going to put the audio drama on hold for a little while until I can see where this is going. you know and then eventually maybe we'll just have another team that's working on the audio audio drama because they're fun too. I mean it's something you can you know if you listen to all three it's like forty four minutes worth of entertainment.
2: Okay, yeah no um, I remember in high school, not that I at all back the theology of left behind, but I really enjoyed their (laughs) audio dramas uh, in high school before I went to this. Okay, so my second question before we get into discussing the man, the myth, the legend of Nimrod. Huh. Um, when is your next book coming out, man? Oh,
1: you know what? Um, well, people have been really hounding me on that because I, I had, had announced in book one, Babylon Rising, that this was part one of four. And it, it still is. I'm, I'm still doing it. And
2: But Archon Invasion is part one of another book that's going to make up book two, right? <laughs> yeah, <you said. laughs> see,
1: yeah. see now you know how I got messed up. But, because after, here's my thing. I'm like, when I got to 366 pages, I thought, I got to stop here or I wouldn't even read this book. <laughs> you know, because you know, when I see a book that's like 500 pages or something, I just like, I buy it because I want it, but I'll never read it. You know, it's something that I'll probably thumb through for, you know, a, a, a research resource, but I, I try to keep my books at about the 350 ish Uh, because that's something that I would read. And so when I wrote Arkon Invasion, uh, it was a good place for me to stop because at at that point in the book I basically just covered the historical time period of the Bible, for the most part. Um, The stuff that was going to that I was going to continue writing uh, is stuff dealing with uh, more modern times. uh, The modern return of the Nephilim and transhumanism, what's going on in the world today with that. That's still in the works. Um, The other When I finish that, what I'll probably do is condense it and make that Babylon Rising book two. Um, So you'll have sort of the elaborated version in the Archon Invasion series, if that makes sense. Um, Then you'll have kind of the whole synopsis of it, really, in book two of Babylon Rising. And then book three is Mythology and the Coming Great Deception. um, And book four would be kind of the Countdown to Armageddon stuff. A lot of that content is already up uh, and available for people to read um, as blogs. Yeah, they, I just haven't turned them into books yet. Um, but I've actually been, well, sidetracked with a couple of things that that I felt um, I needed to do first. And one of them was produce the Genesis and the synchronized biblically endorsed extra biblical text textbook, uh, which I did uh, earlier. I think it was either you know, later last year or earlier this year. I forget when I did it. But because uh, I talked about it so much in all my presentations, I said, you know what, I'm just going to put them all in volume, put that out. And then after I did that, I realized I want to put forth um, the Torah book collection uh, with because I really got into studying the Nephilim. You have to read the five books of Moses because that's where you get the most information. But as I was digging into the Torah and, and looking through those things, mainly for the Nephilim and Nimrod and stuff, that was really bait that uh, that our father used to reel me into much deeper revelation and understanding who my Savior was. Because in uh, Luke 24, you see that Yeshua is walking on the road to Emmaus uh, with these two guys, and they don't recognize him. They don't know that it's him. And it says he, start with, he began with Moses and the prophets to open up the scriptures that illustrated everything that talked about himself. And the end result was that when their, when their eyes were finally opened, they said, man, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened up the scriptures to us? And I had already spent a lot of time in the Torah but i wasn't i was so busy focused on nimrod and you know nephilim and all that stuff that i was missing a much bigger picture a much bigger story and i realized something that i'm like well you know everything i know about my savior i know from matthew mark luke and john you know the gospels and the of course the epistles the new testament essentially i couldn't build a case for my messiah from the from Moses and the prophets. Yeah, of course, you got Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. You know, there's some of the token verses that we might go to. But I couldn't do what Yeshua did on the road to Emmaus. I couldn't begin with Moses and the prophets to illustrate everything that talked about him. And so I I began to pray. I said, Lord, I want this heartburn that these guys got. Uh, You didn't reveal to us in the Luke 24 passage what you you told them. (laughs) You know, and I believe that's for a reason because he wants us all to experience that. And I'm going into my fifth year now, uh, as of this past weekend, uh, of studying the Torah uh, through a one-year cycle. And uh, I wanted to produce the, uh, some some volumes of books that I call the Wisdom from the Torah series. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, with related portions from the Prophets and New Testament to show you how literally the Torah was the Bible of the Bible. In other words, the people in the Bible were using it as their Bible, <laughs> and 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 showing how each of the portions from the Torah that you go through in a year are related to various portions that, that the prophets wrote about and of course that the New Testament writers wrote about. so that's been my um, my my book authoring focus for the last year and a half or so. Now that that's done, we just finished with Deuteronomy. I'm like, okay, now i can I can shift gears and go back uh, to working on the Babylon Rising and archon series, but then something else happened <laughs> and um it, and it became the uh the Yahuwah Triangle, a Great Pyramid, Babylon, and the Commandments of Eden, which um, was something else percolating in the back of my head for a number of years. I finally had to do a brain dump on and wrote six blogs fairly recently just the last month or two. I wrote three blogs on the Great Pyramid and three blogs on the Garden of Eden that are all fairly lengthy and I did them as, um, as a presentation at Sukkot last week and um, was very well received. It's about five hours worth of teaching. That That's going to be my next book. So um, I, I'm going to take the six blogs that I've already written and a few others that I haven't written yet, put that in, hopefully by the end of this year. That's my goal. By the end of uh, 2014 to publish the Yuhua Triangle book. And that's just one book. It's not a series. <laughs> so once I get that one done... Um, I'll, I'll redirect and hopefully get the other Babylon Rising stuff out. But, man, it's like there's never enough time in the day, man
2: no no there there definitely is it is not we get that
1: and trying to start seed and everything else everything else you're trying to do
2: come on rob why aren't you superhuman what's your problem man no i'm I'm kidding
1: you know it's crazy i i preach against it but more and more i'm thinking man it'd be nice to have a clone (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah
2: um what one more quick quick question? Um, I cannot remember the exact name of the title. I have the book. I'm reading it. I'm, oh wait, I don't have it in here. Um, it's Dr. Russ Huck's book, uh, examining the infected roots of Christianity and or Judaism and Christianity. Yeah, you had referenced that book as a big paradigm shifting book for you in Canary Cry, which is what turned that me onto that. Yeah. Um. I'm just about to wrap up the Judaism part of it, and I got to tell you, I'm like not fighting the spirit, but I know he wants me to continue reading, but I'm thinking to myself, if Rob Skiba is chucking this book at a wall, I'm not going <laughs> to like it very much.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs>
1: what you're making reference to is, I, yes, I have talked about this on another uh, other number of other shows. Literally, I mean, I, I would read something that this guy wrote and it would tick me off. I'm like, this guy's crazy. He's out of his mind. And literally I would throw the book across the room. Like, I'm done. You know? And and it was like God would keep telling me, No, go pick that book up and keep reading. And three times I did that. I threw it now, I'm gonna say I, I don't agree with everything that he has to say. I don't. But but there is enough that he did say that really it really was a paradigm shift for me, but I had sort of been prepared for a fair amount of it already. First of all, because of the research that I did in Babylon Rising. As I was writing Babylon Rising, the last, what I thought was the last chapter was called Coming Out of Babylon. And that was really all about our troops leaving Iraq and, you know, geopolitical stuff. And I thought, okay, I'm done. Um, but then God said, no, you've got to come out of Babylon too. I'm like, I'm not in Babylon. Well, yeah, you are. And that's when I had to really reckon with things that I already knew, sort of, you know, like Christmas and Easter that has nothing whatsoever to do with our Savior, but yet we all play the game. Um, But after I'd written a whole book on Nimrod and pagan worship and everything else and how he's literally the god of the world and everything, um, I had to reckon with that within my my own self, my own life. And that led to writing what became the last chapter of the book called Truth Truth or Tradition. And uh, right around the time I was writing that, I had seen Jim Staley had produced a video by that title, Truth or Tradition, that just knocked a home run. I thought, man, this guy just nailed it. Um, He did a a great job of talking about our pagan, um, so many pagan things that we do in Christianity. And there's another book by George Barna, um, I think it's called Pagan Christianity, and he basically says, you know what, if you take a look at the church today, basically if we do it, it's not in Scripture. (laughs) <laughs> and that's a harsh statement. And you look through some of the things that we do in the standard Christianity and in the church today, and you know he's he's right about a lot of it. And so I had all that kind of as a primer, really, before I read Dr. Hauk's book. Um, and then I ended up meeting the guy. Um, yeah, we were invited to go somewhere with the the somebody. Facebook has been. Crazy cool uh, how things have worked out for us you know I got five thousand quote unquote friends on Facebook, but I don't know ninety five percent of them you know these just people that have found me through whatever um but you know now every now and then it turns out to be a really cool connection and somebody had invited Sheila and I to go out to dinner and we went out to dinner with these people and met dr howck he was he was there and I'm like huh and I didn't tell the guy that I, you know I, I was throwing his book in the corner and stuff until a little bit later. <laughs> but, you know, I, he turned out to be a really cool guy. And as we got to know each other a little bit, um, he, he got a hold of my materials. I gave him, you know, my mythology and coming great deception and stuff. And he was blown away by the Nimrod stuff and he had been sort of a student of eschatology for most of his life, and he, like many of us who study end times, have all our charts, you know, our, our Tim LaHaye charts, our Hal Lindsey charts, and our own charts that we make and stuff, and we're influenced by these other people and the way they think and the, their view of the Bible and whatnot, and um, I had, after doing the Nimrod and, and Nimla, uh, uh, Nephilim research, I mean, when you when you insert the Nephilim, the variables of the Nephilim and Nimrod into end times equations, you throw away all your charts
2: because oh, yeah. it changes, it changes everything. everything. Well, because those charts are all, well, this is figurative language. A lot of it is. Sure. It's going to work out like this. So that. No, it's literal, everyone. Yeah, exactly.
1: And, and you know what? To be fair, it really wasn't until the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century that you could take everything literally. I mean, like, yeah. You know, how could everybody in the world see two people dead in the streets of Jerusalem, you know, the, the two witnesses?
2: Well, as it says in Daniel, in the last days, knowledge will increase.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and because knowledge has increased, some of these things that prior generations could really only take symbolically or, you know, allegorically, well, now we could take them literally. Uh, and 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 when you factor in a uh, return of the Nephilim in the last days and understand what Yeshua is saying in matthew twenty four that our days would be like the days of Noah, and you figure out what was going on in the days of Noah, both in the six hundred years before the flood as well as in the three hundred and fifty years after it that he lived uh i mean every everything changes, and when he Dr Hauk, recognized that, he invited uh um, my friend Kevin Roberts uh and myself and our wives to to his house for what he called what he what planned to be a, an afternoon of eschatology so we're gonna spend a whole afternoon over there comparing charts comparing notes and rewriting things as we see fit you know in our charts based on what we talk about Well, that planned four or five hour day turned into three days we just camped out there for uh... literally three days Um. And and it was all just going through scripture, just constantly, just comparing notes and going through scripture and revising charts and whatnot. And as uh, as a result of doing that, friendships were developed. You know, um, and, and as all part of that coming out of Babylon routine uh, and realizing, look, let go of the beast feast. That's what I call them, beast feasts of Christmas and Easter and you know Valentine's days and so many others. Um, and realize that our Father has given us feasts of his own. They're not the feasts of the Jews. If you read Leviticus 23, it clearly tells you these are the feasts of capital L-O-R-D, yod heh vav These are the feasts of God, not the Jews. And they're to be everlasting. They're, they're forever stuff. You know, you read, this is an everlasting statute. This is a, you know, a, should be a statute for you forever. You see these terms that don't in any way indicate that they're going to end at the cross, as so many of us have been taught and that i mean that opened up a whole new world as a paradigm shift as you say um but as we started studying the torah what happens and this is what Russ Hauck, if you if you've seen his book he has a simple illustration of a hill with a straight narrow road going over the top of the hill to the sun you know to the horizon and on the right i think it's on the right he has the the ditch of pagan christianity and on the left the ditch of rabbinic judaism and the goal of his book, Epidemic, is to set up guardrails to keep you from sliding off into either ditch. Because you come out of pagan Christianity, and you realize, wow, I mean, all this stuff is really related to Nimrod. What am I doing? And you come out of that ditch, get on a straight, narrow path for a little while, trying to walk in the things of God doing, as Jim Saley would say, Bible things and Bible ways, doing things God way. But then, all of a sudden, you start reading the traditions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rabbis and... Next thing you know, you're doing all this rabbinic Judaism stuff, and you just slid off into the other ditch. Meanwhile, the guys in rabbinic Judaism are finally realizing who their Jewish Messiah is, Yeshua. They come up over the top, and then many of those guys slide off in the pagan Christianity, and you know, next thing they're doing, you know, they've replaced the Sabbath with Sunday, and they're doing Christmas and Easter, and you know, they got the Christmas tree in their business and homes, and uh, you know, so his whole thing was let's set up. Guardrails, and that's when his book came into our life. His book came into our life right about the time because we started. My wife and I started going to a house church at my friend Kevin's house, and we were studying the Torah, studying the prophets, studying the New Testament together, one complete book. And uh, you know, you start trying to walk in the things of God, and you you set up guardrails to uh, maybe that's an, the you basically become a rabbinic Jew, because you start thinking, well, wait a minute, I can't start a fire on Saturday. So, Mm -hmm. but my, when I started my car, that's a fire, that's an ignition. And when I turned on the light switch, I mean, that's a fire. And, you know, you start, you start going crazy because you're like, what can I do? You know, um, and he kind of brought it, Russ Haug kind of brought it all around for us to, to help us. I mean, Yeshua had said it. He said, the Sabbath is created for you, not you for the Sabbath. In other words, it's meant to be a blessing to you. It's meant to, you know, it's, but the rabbis got to the point where they added so much tradition and oral law and whatnot to the perfect law of God. that They made it such that really all you could do is lay in bed and breathe shallow on Saturday. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, you're doing some measure of work and you're violating the Sabbath.
0: It really, really lost the blessing aspect.
1: Totally. And that's what he was, Yeshua was always fighting with the, what was he fighting about? He was fighting with the Pharisees and Sadducees because he was intentionally doing stuff on the Shabbat, on the Sabbath, and they're like, Oh, hey, you can't do that. Uh, well, the question is, did he violate the Sabbath? Well, he violated their understanding of it, but if he violated God's commandment, the fourth commandment, then he's not the sinless lamb and our faith in him is in vain. And you got people out there saying that see Jesus Himself violated the Sabbath. I'm like, dude, you got to rethink that because if you if you believe that, then we don't have a sinless Savior, Uh, and in, in everything you believe is completely in vain. No, he kept his Father's commandments perfectly, but he challenged the traditions of man
2: constantly. Yeah, yeah, no. Exactly, exactly, oh, and that one thing I love about the opening in his book, I think it's even in his intro the way he says God has never nor will he ever create or ordain a religion. the vehicle by which he chooses to communicate with or have a relationship with man is through a covenant correct, correct yeah, I thought I thought that was great, I was like,
1: yeah, well, and also if you look up that word covenant um just do a keyword search on it and look at the scriptures it says that God keeps covenant and mercy it's conditional with those who keep his commandments. <laughs> it's like so that begs the question. All right. Well, if you're not keeping the commandments, does he is he bound then to keep his covenant with you? And and I'm looking at that going well, it doesn't look like it. I mean, if I just take this and read it for what it says, it says he keeps covenant and mercy with those who obey him and keep his commandments. So and then the next thing, well, well you know, we all, we're all sinners saved by grace. Well, yeah, that's true. But if you read 1 John 2, uh, John says, I'm writing these things to you, little children, that you do not sin. Well, that means it's possible not to sin. And then he says, you know, but if you do, you know, he basically says, it's all right, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay, great. Get back up and try again. But that's not an excuse to go living in sin. And, well, I yeah, mean, as yeah.
2: Paul said, do, don't sin so that grace may abound. God
1: forbid. And you know, my uh, speaking of Paul, I, I, I understand, I, I've come to the place now, after four years of studying the Torah, I am fully convinced now that nobody should ever read a single sentence that Paul wrote until you've spent one year studying the Torah. Because until you do, you don't understand a thing he wrote. I understand him now better than I. I, I, I love Paul, like. I mean, you got people in the Hebrew Roots Movement, which I distance myself from constantly. I'm like, I'm not part of that, because um, I think a lot of those guys have gone crazy. Um, they they want to throw Paul out. They, they, some of them are rejecting Yeshua as the Messiah. They're trying to advocate for polygamy because so many of the people in the Bible, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, you guys have your little crazyville over there, but I, I'm just, I understand the roots of my, fa- my faith are Hebrew, but I'm not going to go by that title.
2: Because because I I think as you said before, you want to be a good Berean.
1: Exactly. What were the Bereans doing? They did not study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they hadn't been written yet. When the Bereans were studying the scriptures, quote-unquote, they were reading the Torah and the prophets because that's what they had for scripture. And, uh, you know, the Deuteronomy 13 test basically is like if somebody comes along saying that you don't need to obey God, you should have nothing to do with that guy. You know, he's a heretic. You you know, kill him. Um, And unfortunately so many people in the body of Christ today, calling themselves Christians, think that Paul is advocating against the law of God. And if they believe that, then he's a guy who failed the Deuteronomy 13 test. <laughs> um, I'm glad my the Paul that I believe in uh, passed with flying colors. But if you're going to tell, use Paul to try to tell me that I shouldn't be keeping the Sabbath or the feast or, oh, God forbid, obeying God, <laughs> then I'm going to tell you, your Paul has failed the Deuteronomy 13 test. And go read what that's all about, you know. Um, but my wife had this idea. We were reading in, uh, I think it was first four chapters of Matthew, uh, if I'm not mistaken, where Yeshua is dealing with the woman caught in adultery. And he, you know, he says, you know, I don't condemn you. And he says, go and sin no more. Well, Sheila, my wife, she said, you know, what if instead of the word sin, we actually replace that sort of generic word with the definition that the Bible gives us for sin in 1 John 3, 4. John tells us sin is transgression of the Torah, transgression of the law. So what does he say to her? The woman caught in adultery, which is one of the Ten Commandments, she broke. She sa- he says to her, go and transgress the Torah no more. Go and transgress the law no more. And so I thought, huh, that's a novel idea. I'm going to look up everywhere Paul uses the word sin and just replace it with the biblical definition. And I posted a Facebook note on it with dozens. I'm talking dozens. People think Paul's teaching against the law. No way. If you, you look at all the time Paul says the word sin and use the definition for sin, transgression of the law, you'll see that he's a huge advocate for not transgressing the law. Yeah, I mean, when you realize that, it changes everything, because, it, I mean, either your Paul is, is, is schizophrenic and contradicts himself, or you have a misunderstanding of Paul, and you need to go back and read the Torah so you can understand what he's actually saying, uh, and realize then that Paul is absolutely 100% in agreement and perfect harmony with every other author of Scripture. Because, but you listen to most Christians these days, and all they use is Paul, and I'm like, guys, Hello! Uh, Peter tells you, I think it's 2 Peter 3, maybe somewhere in there, Uh, Peter says, look, ignorant and unstable people are twisting and distorting Paul's writings and falling into the error of lawlessness. Torahlessness. So, if if that's your view of Paul, Peter rebukes you
2: and tells you you're you're ignorant and unstable. (laughs) Don't do that! that. Yeah. No, um, since my wife and I have been married, like shortly after we got married, we've had a lot of discussions and we've done a lot of research on the law. And um, a point I always bring up to people is in um, Matthew when he says, not a jot nor a tittle of this shall pass away. Till heaven and earth, right? Right. Right. and, but then I, I come from the angle where you're coming from, where uh, sin means transgression of the Torah, or, you know, if you really want to simplify a disobedience to God's word or commands. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So if we're going to follow the logic that the law is no longer in place, yeah, I'm supposed to still please God and obey God and not sin, then what am I not sinning against? Yep. If the yep. law is no longer valid. Exactly. You know and i i mean paul's not advocating that the the law saves you it's the work of christ it's the it's his yeshua his work saves you yeah. his death on the cross his resurrection but uh, like you're, you're you're saying you know the commands are still in place it's not this uh all oh, yeah, I can't remember the word right now um, for the different ages that they used. Uh, dis, yeah, the church age. Dispensationalism. Yeah, this was, this uh, the, you know, the, uh, law, the age of the law and the age of grace. And it's like, what? Yeah, that that was something I had to let go of too.
1: Um, look, I was in the pre-trib rapture camp for, well, I mean, I grew up in the church and lived in, the, I mean, I was one of those Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and midweek Bible study stuff. You know, I was always in church, always in the scriptures, and was in a pre-trib rapture mindset until just a few years ago. So, you know, that's 40-something years there uh, in that mindset. And the only way you can justify a pre-trib rapture is to create the crutch of dispensation theology. Because uh, without it, you've got a lot of scriptures that point-blank contradict the pre-trib rapture, such as Matthew twenty-four, twenty-nine, through 31 Where Yeshua says, hey, I'm not going to be in the clouds until after the tribulation of those days. And he sends forth the angels, you know, to harvest and everything. And Paul says, we meet him in the clouds at the Harpazo, the rapture. So, look, uh, Yeshua's not going to bend to what Paul says. Paul's going to have to bend to what Yeshua says. Yeshua says, the only time Yeshua said he's going to be in the clouds is after the tribulation. So... Um, I finally had to reckon with, and, and you know, dispensation theology tells you, well, Matthew 24, Jesus is talking to the Jew. I'm like, okay, well, I disagree with you, first of all, but let's go with that assumption. Let's say that that's true. Well, his Jewish followers, i.e., Christians, you know, followers of Christ are Christians, right? Um, they believed in him. They asked him, "What would be the signs of your coming?" Don't you think? a massively huge sign to mention would be millions of people let's say millions of gentiles flying up into the sky to meet me in the clouds um, would be a massively huge sign you know he, he he should have said okay guys here's the deal. when you see millions of gentiles flying up into the clouds to meet me up there that's your first clue that the next seven years or three and a half or whatever you believe in uh, are going to be really bad, followed by, you know, earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He doesn't do that, though. He leaves out what should be the biggest sign of all, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I always had a problem with that. I'm like, why did he, you know, if if this pre-Trib Rapture thing's true, why did he leave that massively huge sign out, you know? uh and you know finally and, and thanks to 119 ministries they have a video called the Era of dispensationalism that uh i i finally ditched that whole doctrine uh that i was fully immersed in at one time i mean i used to i was a hardcore preacher but wrote about it taught about it wrote scripts about it not anymore and um you know after you get rid of dispensationalism and realize wait a minute um you fully, fully understand what Paul is saying in Romans 11. Romans 11 can't be any more clear that when you accept Yeshua as your Savior, you are grafted into the cultivated olive tree that is Israel. And in Ephesians 2, you were once foreigners to the commonwealth of Israel. You are now brought nigh. You are brought into the commonwealth of Israel. Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem comes down, defined as, a 12, defined as the bride of the, of the Lamb, We as Christians think we're the Bride of Christ. Well, Christ is the Lamb. It tells you point blank, the Bride of the Lamb is the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem is defined by the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 gates. There's no mystical 13th gate called the church. All of a sudden, like, I mean, you talk about a paradigm shift. I mean, basically, I mean, you got to understand. Growing up as a, you know, I I grew up in a King James-only Baptist, hardcore, you know, fundamentalist, dispensationalist, pre-trib rapture background. This stuff rocked my world, man. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. And, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of friends and family are still uh, in that paradigm. And they think that I've gone off the deep end and I'm the heretic and whatever. Um, but I, I can't, you know, I can't read Romans 11 and not see that, wait a minute. You know, I was a wild olive tree branch that got grafted into the cultivated olive tree because some of the branches of the cultivated olive tree got broken off for my sake. You know, um, and and once I realized, okay, wait a minute, I'm grafted into it. My personal opinion is that I believe I'm grafted into the, because you also have two sticks in Ezekiel 37, the stick of Ephraim and the stick of Judah. Uh, There's no third stick called the church there. (laughs) Um, I believe that as a former Gentile, I don't believe you can be a Gentile believer. That's an oxymoron. That's a contradiction of terms. The the goyim, the the Gentiles, were nations that were out of covenant with Yahweh, with Yahuwah. Um, Only Israel was in covenant with Yahuwah. So once I have accepted Yeshua as my Lord and Savior, then I have crossed over from death into life. And the word crossed over is Hebrew. That's what the Hebrew means, crossing over. So if I have crossed over from death to life, then I am a Hebrew. And if I've been grafted into the cultivated olive tree and adopted into the fam- family slash commonwealth of Israel, then I believe I get grafted onto the stick of Ephraim, um, which is something Russ Hauk is pretty big on. Um, because of the prophecy of Jacob over Ephraim, when he prophesied that Ephraim would become the uh, multitude of nations, the multitude of Gentiles. And that's what Paul talks about. He says, when the multitude of Gentiles comes in, then all of Israel will be saved. Well, hello. (laughs) That's happening. Um, And and I believe that uh, the parable of the um, prodigal son is the story of Ephraim and Judah. Ephraim's gone off into and, and pig swallow, you know, and finally comes back. And Judah's like, hey, you know, why are you getting—I mean, I've been faithful all along. I've been keeping the Sabbath, doing the feasts everything. And the father's like, yeah, but your, lo- your brother was lost, and now he's found. And that's and what I think Paul's talking about, where, where we end up provoking the Jew to jealousy uh, such that they want to get right with God also. And that's happening, man. For for in our little circle, as we've started to keep the Sabbath and keep the feasts and and do all these things that the, that the Jews that we know, um, they just it's rote to them. They just you know it's tradition. They just do it. God, they don't really even know why they do it. They just do these things. But they're seeing us doing it, and not only just doing it, but jacked out of our mind, excited you know, about it. Um, they're like, man, what, what 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 do you get that I don't get? Well, we get that these things are all, as Paul said, shadows of our Savior, of your Savior, of the Jewish Messiah. All the feasts are all about him. And, uh, you know, there's, they're seeing through our zeal and excitement their Messiah. And I've gotten a, a number of emails and testimonials of, of Jews that have come to understand their Jewish Messiah and have accepted Christ as a result of some of the things we're doing. And... I mean, man, that's awesome! You know, not only for us
0: but for them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Rob, real quick, uh, there. I had one question, uh, and then I kind of wanted to break into a discussion about Nimrod. Yeah, man. And um, so here's my question. So you say Yeshua, um, and I, you know, I've I've watched the uh, Mount Hermon Roswell connection, and and uh, what's the other mythology. one? The first one that mythology. Yeah. So that was, that was like my introduction to your work was that stuff. And, and when you talk about, you know, destroy the establishment of the eye, et cetera. Um, so here's, here's my question. I, I go down kind of my own set of rabbit trails. Uh, Dan and I have our different areas of research and, and interest and whatnot, but I get really into the legal part of the new world order where it's like trying to figure out the whole birth certificate issue and all that stuff. You know what I'm saying? Um, one of the guys that I that I've taken a lot of notes on a lot of his lectures, uh, this guy named David Sidney, I don't swear by everything that he says, but he also uses Yeshua, uh-huh. and in in this uh, presentation that he put together, he talks about you know, just the meanings of words, how important words are and what the, what they can really do to you, you know what I mean? Just like in a court of law or whatever. Sure. And then he breaks down even, you know, he goes, to, he talks about, you know, you want to talk about the paganism aspect of it. He talks about, you know, you go to, you go to college or the university and um, you want to, you know, Get a job in weather. So you're now, you know, you have to become a meteorologist and that's the logos of Meteora and You know, it just goes on and on and on about all these different professions and you know, and While he's on that trail he goes down the Yeshua path mm-hmm. and What he claims and this is not you know I'm just throwing this out there because obviously you're you're uh, very well studied on a lot of this stuff, but um uh, He says that in the passion of the Christ uh, they called Jesus Yeshua. Yeah. And w- w- the thing is, is that they spelt it Y-E-S-H-U-A. I believe that's how it was spelled. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is what David Sidney and his uh, assistant, you know, Joe Darlack, like, uh, said. And again, I'm, I'm not backing what they said exactly because I have no clue. But they say that it's actually supposed to be Yeho- yah yeah Yeah, and it Yeah, exactly, with like an apostrophe, YAH, you know, whatever, because, and this is what they claim, they say that when you use Y E H, that's actually the negative form, and uh, that basically, what that means is like, not, may he not be the savior, or may, you know, and I I don't know if you've heard anything about that, but the YAH. Uh, would mean that, yeah, may he be, he is, you know, the redeemer, et cetera. Uh, have you heard anything of this, or is this just, like, totally, like, bananas?
1: No, I heard, I've heard. i heard a lot of those arguments. However, uh, while you were saying that, um, let's see, surely God is this. I'm looking something up as you're talking. Um, if you go to, do, 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 okay, go to Bible.cc, And, and if you go to Bible.cc and in the search window on the homepage there, uh, well actually just in the you see the top there it has um, Genesis one one.
0: I'm I'm just waiting for it to load because I'm one sec here. Okay, I'm I'm on the page now. Sorry. Okay, what, right what at the was top, it? you
1: see the drop down windows Genesis one one.
0: Yes. Okay, um,
1: in there select. Uh, Isaiah 12:2. So just use the drop-down menu for Isaiah, uh, and then in the second window put chapter 12 and then verse 2. And this is a great go-to verse. Um, King James: "Behold, God is my salvation; I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song; he has also become my salvation." Well, if if you're on that Isaiah 12, 2 page, you, you'll see uh, the two menus that are there. One says Hebrew. If you click on the Hebrew um, button, that takes you to the Hebrew of the text. And it shows you the word salvation, where that word comes from. And that's Strong's number 3444, four, four, which is interesting numbers, uh in and of itself, four four four. I, I see triple digits like all the time, and so I I got obsessed with trying to figure out what these numbers mean. And four 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 stands out to me because I saw it a lot, um, and that I came to find out that four 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 represents God at work in the earth through His covenant people, and of course three uh, being a number with the Godhead and whatnot. Um, but three four four. I mean, it's, it's a strongest number, so it's not like ooh, you know, <laughs> who cares? Anyway, it's just something that caught my attention. Uh, but the word is used 77 times. You see in the right, it says Eastman's Concordance, Strong's Hebrew, 344, 4, used 77 times. It's the word Yeshua. The word salvation comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua. So right. I would say that guy's full of it, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, okay. I mean, I mean, here's the perfect example where the word's used twice in, in one sentence, and it's the word Yeshua. Now, Yehoshua is the long form uh, of, of our Savior's name, it's Joshua. Moses changed right, right, right. Hoshua's name to Yehoshua, which means Yah is salvation. So that's the full meaning, Yah is salvation, or just salvation, Yeshua, salvation. Um, I, I liken Yeshua as the shortened f- form of Yehoshua, as the same way Robert is my full name, but I go by Rob. Rob's my informal name. Okay. Okay. Uh, th- that would be my answer to that. Now, um, I, let me just say this also. I, you know People always try to, well, you're a Hebrew Rusket. No, I'm not. Uh, you're a Seventh-day Adventist. No, I'm not. Uh, you're a sacred namer. No, I'm not. The sacred namers uh, out there get all wrapped around the axle. Well, you have to say Yeshua or you're not really saved, or Yehoshua or you're not really saved, or, or Yahweh or Yahuwah or Jehovah or blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm not in that camp. Uh, I believe that there is still power in the name of Jesus. However, I recognize J-E-S-U-S didn't exist 400 years ago. It is it is a new word <laughs> uh, that came from Iesus, which was a, a Greek transliteration. Uh, where, and it's interesting when you— tr- kind of track that back and see how they jumped through hoops to get all those letters where they wanted them because you know certain letters in hebrew didn't they didn't have an equivalent in greek you know well you see the morphology of how we ended up with iesus then translated uh, transliterated into english as jesus i mean it's it's interesting i don't think there was ever um malice you know any kind of ill intent in doing this, but I am confused by it, I'll tell you that, because the King James translators had no problem uh, making the word Joshua out of the same exact word, you know, so I'm like, it's like, okay, why did you take the exact same word and translate it as Joshua throughout the Bible, and then invent this completely new word out of thin air, Jesus? You know, I don't I don't get it. Um, but having said that, I got saved in the name of Jesus. I was a missionary for six and a half years and have been in some form of evangelism since vacation Bible school in my parents' front yard. And I've led hundreds, probably thousands at this time, uh, of people to salvation in the name of Jesus. I have seen demons cast out in the name of Jesus. I have I have healed people. My hands have—I I haven't, but Father, Holy Spirit working through me has— brought healing to people through my hands in the name of Jesus. So, I still believe that there's power in the name of Jesus. However, when I discovered Yeshua, why would I go back? <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, I, but I don't get dogmatic about this. I don't you know, I'm, I'm Yeah, well, that's a good go-to scripture right there, and there's 77 other occurrences (laughs) of Strong's number 344. So basically,
2: if you need a confirming witness, you've got it. You've
1: got 77 confirming witnesses. That's
2: a pretty good number. (laughs) Great. So this has been really great so far, Rob. We could talk theology and different things for a really long, long time. But uh, we would like to get into... I've got time, by the way. Uh, you're, you're good yeah i'm good okay, okay. so uh, uh you can do one of those three day do, rust hook just, kind of camp i can do
1: it th- not a three day but i can do a three hour
0: okay <laughs> awesome cool. so, uh yeah we uh we i i wanted to say like with your work and uh getting into all this stuff with the new world order and whatnot ever since kind of our our worlds got rocked like for me growing up in the church and everything as well like i don't like i didn't even know who nimrod was dude you know (laughs) and so can we just start with for all the believers out there that just really don't even know who nimrod is can we just start there
1: yeah absolutely well i mean he shows up in the table of nations in genesis chapter 10. uh if i remember right it's verses eight and nine um and table nations is just kind of what theologians have called that area of scripture it's basically after the flood they, they get to so-and-so beget so-and-so, you know, of the three sons of, uh, of Noah. And uh, he, of course, Nimrod, shows up in the lineage of um, Ham through his son Cush. So, uh, you know, we know that Ham had, uh, he had Mitzram well, he had Canaan, Mitzram, Put, and Cush. And Nimrod is the son of Cush. Um, and it's really, I mean, you don't get a whole lot about him. Now, if you do a keyword search like on Bible.cc or some other software, I mean, he doesn't show up but a handful of times, by name, anyway, by that name. And, and to be honest with you, I'm not entirely certain that that is actually his name. It may have been a title. Because uh, the name means, we shall rebel. Um and so he's known as the rebellious one, and, and Paul refers to him as the man of sin, which is transgression of law, which is rebellion. <laughs> so uh, there's kind of your first clue, I think, uh, as to who the Antichrist is. Uh, if you look at the way Paul refers to these people, and you have to understand that the New Testament writers, all of them, that they, they are not writing in a void. They are writing with a, with a clear understanding of what we call the Old Testament. Um, So, it it really, I like the way Doug Hamp puts it, he says the New Testament is really a a, a Bible commentary of the Old Testament. Uh, And I think he's right. They're not writing in a void. They're writing about things that find precedence in the Old Testament. So when Paul starts talking about the man of sin in reference to the Antichrist, and when John gets the revelation, and, and, the, and I really think that you can build a huge case for Nimrod being the Antichrist uh, using Revelation 17, Revelation 13, Revelation 9, Matthew 24, and Micah chapter 5. Um, and and I that's backwards, that's working backwards, you know, uh, from the chronology of, of those books in Scripture. But I, the reason I put it in that order is because it's, it's easier for me to describe it. Um, I think it just it makes it easier to understand where I'm coming from and what I believe the scriptures are saying uh, when you go in that order. But he shows up in uh, Genesis chapter 10, and it says that he began to become a mighty one in the earth. Um, but if you look in the Septuagint, then this is what I find really interesting, why I put The Septuagint, when I made the book uh, Genesis and the synchronized, biblically-endorsed, extra-biblical text, in in the Genesis section, I put the Septuagint and the King James side-by-side as a parallel Bible because there are some notable differences uh, between the King James and the uh, Septuagint. And one of those notable differences is right there in Genesis chapter 10. Let me pull that out here. Um, Genesis 10, 8, and 9... In the King James says, And Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. That's what it says in King James. But the Septuagint says, And Cush begat Nimrod, he began to become a giant upon the earth. He was a giant hunter before the Lord. Therefore they say, as Nebrod, Nebrod is the derivative spelling of Nimrod, the giant hunter before the Lord. Well, that's interesting, because if you're just reading in the English King James, you're like, okay, so he became a strong dude, you know, he's powerful, a uh, powerful guy. But the Septuagint said, well, no, he began to become a giant in the earth. Well, why does it say that? Well, it comes from the Hebrew word gebor, or the geborim is a plural when you when you add I am and the Hebrew word, it becomes plural. Gabor is the definition for gebor is yes. Uh, mighty man, strong, courageous, mighty warrior, but also giant is a definition. Well, clearly a giant would be a mighty man, you know. Uh, He's a big, strong guy. Um, But what I find intriguing about the Septuagint is that it was translated into, the Septuagint was Hebrew scholars, some say 70, that's where they get the word Septuagint from, 70 Hebrew scholars translated their Hebrew scriptures into the Greek. And Brenton later did it in English for our benefit. Um, so not only are they just translating from Hebrew to Greek, but they're also bringing with it their Hebraic understanding, their Hebraic heritage, culture, you know. And when they translated the same Hebrew word gebor, giborim, later regarding like David's mighty men, when it talks about David had David and his mighty men, it says that they were you know mighty, courageous warriors in the Septuagint. Uh, the Greek word that they used in the Septuagint, translating from the same Hebrew word, Giborim, they translated gaborim as Ton dinaton or "ton dinatos, which means, yes, courageous, strong warrior. But they took that same exact Hebrew word in, in Genesis 10, 8, and 9, as also in Genesis 6, 4, and translated it as giant. They used the, the Greek word gigantus or giganus. So you're like, okay. You know, they take the same Hebrew word geborim in Genesis and make it uh, gigantus, and in regarding David's mighty man, they tone dinaton, turned dinatos. They understood the difference, so I'm going, okay, well, what did they know? I mean, what's the deal with that? So that's what first kind of cued me in, and I got to credit um, Steve Quayle and Tom Horn for for really steering me in that direction. I had listened to some stuff that they had. Uh, talked about in that regard, and I'm going. Oh, that's that's fascinating. And basically, the way I believe he began to become a giant, I don't believe he was genetically born that way. I began it, the word began there in Hebrew. Um, I forget whether it's chalal or something like that. Um, the word means to profane or defile, and it has a sexual connotation to it. It's used elsewhere as prostitution um, and, and sexual defilement. So it appears that through some sort of sexual defilement. Nimrod did something to himself that caused him to change, to morph, to become a giant. And the best way I could describe that in modern terms would be something like The Incredible Hulk with Bruce Banner. You know, here's a scientist messing around with radiation. Something goes wrong. It's an overdose of gamma radiation, and you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. You know, His eyes turn white and his skin turns green, and he becomes this Hulk. You know, he changes from a normal man into something different. Um, and I believe that something l- like that must have happened to Nimrod. And uh, Dr. Michael Bennett wrote a really good uh, thesis on that in uh, a compilation book called um, uh, Pandemonium's Engine. It's a book published by Tom Horn. And um, in, I think it's chapter one, of, it, Pandemonium's Engine is a um, different authors. They all contributed toward that book. And uh, Dr. Michael ben- Bennett, also known as Dr. Future, uh, I think it's chapter one, is the, fir- the world's first transhuman super soldier. And he- he's writing all about Nimrod there, becoming a transhuman super soldier. Um, I believe that that's how he began to be a giant. But when you look at the sons of Canaan, Canaan, of course, the land became known as the land of Canaan before it was known as the land of Israel. Um, Canaan, his offspring... Uh, They were born that way. The Canaanites were giants. Uh, And we have an incredible testimony regarding the giants in Numbers 13, where the Hebrews send the spies in after the Exodus, and they report the 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 whole land is full of Canaanite giants, and they felt like grasshoppers by comparison to these guys. And if you look at the Canaanites, their offspring—it's the Hivites, the Jebusites, you know, the Amorites. These are all the ites that the Israelites were told repeatedly to utterly destroy, <laughs> all throughout the Bible. And what, there's a book uh, by J.B. Jackson called "A uh, Dictionary of Scripture Proper Names." It's the best five dollars I ever spent. It's a short little book, um, and, and all it is is all the names in the Bible and what the the meaning of their names are, and we know that people uh, named their children f- you know, for a reason. They they had, like, Esau came out red and hairy, so they named him Esau, which means red and hairy. Jacob came out grabbing his heels, so they named him heel grabber, that's what Jacob means, you know. Um, Yahuwah changed Abram's name to Abraham, father of many nations. You know, so the names have meaning, Nimrod, uh, we shall rebel. So I decided to look up the meaning of the names of the people in the table of nations. And most of them are pretty normal or interesting names until you get to Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 20. And that's where you see the the um, Canaanites. And when you look at the meaning of the names of, of the sons of Ham, uh, just all of them putting them
2: together, I,
1: have you ever heard Chuck Missler do a thing where he, he takes the 10 patriarchs? Have you heard him do that?
2: Yeah, and I don't think he was the first one that did it, actually. I can do you know Ken Hovind? Oh, creatures? yeah. Yeah, uh, we're huge advocates of Ken Hovind. Um, yeah, he, Ken Hovind. He talked about it, and that that blows me away. That uh, oh, the, the, the Patriarch the name. First, that's awesome. It was great.
1: Yeah, well, for, for the benefit of your listeners who may not be aware of it, yeah. uh, whether it was Ken Hovind or Chuck Missler, I heard it from Chuck Missler.
2: Oh, no, Ken uh, got it from someone else, um, but it wasn't Chuck that he quoted for it.
1: Yeah, well, he, he basically takes the, the, the meaning of the names from Adam to Noah, the, the, the patriarchs that, uh, on the good side, so to speak, um, through Seth, and uh, he takes the meaning of their names and strings them together in a sentence. So what you end up with is, man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that with his death the despairing shall find rest. It's the whole message of the Bible.
2: It's right, fantastic. Sir.
1: Yeah, like, like the, that's the message of the whole Bible right there in the meaning of the names of the first ten patriarchs. And you're like, oh, wow. I mean, that's, and so I, I i picked up on that idea as I was looking through a lot of the genealogies we find in Scripture. I mean, how many times we get to those passages of Scripture where it's like so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so, and you can't pronounce the names, so you're like, eh, whatever, and you skip it. Um, not anymore, man. Th- those are good gold mines right there there are there's some really cool stuff not not always but a lot of times they there are and uh, the the next cool one that I found after the first ten patriarchs was in the lineage of ham and when I took the meaning of their names and just doing the same thing that Chuck missler and Kent Hoven did just spring just taking the meaning of their names and putting them in the same order that they're listed this is the paragraph that you end up with regarding Genesis 10 6 through 20. Uh, this is the paragraph he raged a dark a black terror double straight afflicted trafficker black terror drink thou anguish compass the chamber Thunder compasses the smiting, he who is coming. Their love we shall rebel, that's Nimrod. A double straight firebrand travailing, affliction of water, blades opening the moistened morsel. Forgiven ones bowing to spy, a trafficker hunting terrors, trodden down sayers, the strangers draw near. Showers of life gnawing like thorns, they shall break loose, double woolen enclosures of wrath. Now, like that's a interesting family tree. Yeah. I'm looking at that going, okay, what what would prompt two proud parents of a newborn baby to look at each other and say, enclosure of wrath, what do you think, honey? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, why would you name your kid terror or, you know, blades opening the moistened morsel, you know? (laughs) It's like, really? Something's going on there. And well, sure enough, you find out as you keep reading through the Torah those are the ites that the Israelites are repeatedly told, told to utterly destroy. I mean, like you see in, uh, well, example, Deuteronomy 20, 17. But you shall utterly destroy them, namely the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Well, this th- scriptures like that are, are where the atheists usually will point to and say why they can't believe in this God, this God. Angry, crazy, schizophrenic, prejudice, God of genocide—that's all over the Old Testament, right? Um, and I—I got to be honest. Before I studied what I call the Genesis Six Experiment, understood what was going on with the Nephilim, I, I got tweaked out with the Old Testament.
2: Man, I mean, yeah, and I gotta say, in your materials, Rob that I was the same way, um, as, as you were that when you plugged in that they're the Nephilim and it wasn't, you know, cause, cause you know how they always teach you in church Well, they were amoral and you know, they, yeah. they were really, they were bad sexual sinners. And I'm, I'm always looking at all through Bible college. And I would even ask my rumors, wait, did, so what did God just miss the Greek and Roman empires? Right, like, right. you know, what happened? Um, so it, you putting that in was like whoa now i get it you know it was it wasn't unjust killing or you know they're really bad sinners and god just said well i'm going to cut you a break but not you it was they're an abomination
1: yeah it, it was the wow moment for me uh steve quayle had made a statement that that really caught my attention he said and this is a paraphrase but he basically said the understanding of genesis 6 is the rosetta stone for understanding all of history in the bible and that's a pretty grandiose statement to make. And I was like, wow, you know, but after I dug into it, I call myself a researcher. And by that, I mean, I re-search that which has been searched by others before me. So when I look at somebody like a Steve Quayle or a Tom Horn and some of the claims that they made, well, I don't just take, I mean, I'll take in what they say and say, okay, that's cool. But then I'm going to go re-search what they're talking about because I want to I discover the same thing that they discovered, but discover it for myself and to see if they're right you know, because um, I may come to a different conclusion and, and in fact I did in regard to the Nephilim come to a different conclusion than, um, than at least a different one than Steve. Um, Tom I think is a little closer, I think we we agree uh, a, a little bit more on this subject than some of these other guys but you know like L.A. Marzulli is another a big Nephilim researcher out there, Doug Hamp, uh, there's there's a few other guys out there and most of these guys are following in the footsteps of Dr. I.D.E. Thomas, who uh, wrote a book called The Omega Conspiracy. And from what I could tell, Dr. I.D.E. Thomas was really parroting the work of um, uh, of Pember. Uh, What's his, uh, I forget his initials, G.H. Pember or something like that. Um, Anyway, Pember, this guy who wrote a book called Earth's Earliest Ages in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, as far as I can tell, he's the first guy that ever made any reference to the idea of what they call multiple incursions of angels coming down and meeting with women again and again and again um, I I have been to this day and I've put a challenge out there for other people to do it I've asked Dr. Jud Burton who's a historian I said Dr. Uh, Dr. Burton have to your knowledge and he's, he's another Nephilim researcher uh, who is a multiple-incursion guy, I said, to your knowledge, is there any recorded, written documentation by anybody that makes reference to the idea of angels mating with women again prior to Pember? And uh, he thought about it for he goes, you know, nothing that I can think of. And I've been asking people, and to, to this day, nobody's found a reference to a multiple-incursion prior to Pember. But Pember was the one that looked at Genesis six four, that said the Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also after that. And he applied the phrase "and also after that" to the post flood world, such as Numbers thirteen thirty three, and said, "See, the, the after that Genesis six four is after the flood." And nobody challenged that idea. Everybody's out there parroting that idea. But when I started looking through the same text everybody else was looking to, I found something completely different. Namely, the Bible tells you exactly where the Nephilim came from after the flood, but it doesn't mention angels anywhere. Genesis 9, 18 and 19 is the smoking gun, in my opinion, of the multiple incursion theory that that blows it out of the water. If you go to um, Genesis 9, let's see, Genesis 9, 18 and 19, I think it is. Let me look it up right here real quick. Genesis nine eighteen nineteen, 19, it tells you, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. Well, i got to stop right there. Why is he all of a sudden singling out Canaan right here? He's a son of three other guys, too, and a lot of the offspring. And why didn't he say, well, and Shem's the father of Arphaxad? You know, why did he say, these are the three sons, and oh, by the way, Ham is the father of Canaan? Uh, and then verse 19, to to reiterate the point that I believe is being made here, it says, These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth populated. Okay, well, that says everything I need to know right there. Every, and Moses is writing this eight over 800 years after the flood. So if he meant to say that there were other people on the earth, i.e. the giants of Canaan the spies had just saw, that came here and they were populating this planet in such vast numbers uh, that they came from somebody else, he should have said the whole earth was populated through these guys except for the giants, which were populated by angels. You know? um, he doesn't. He says the entire world at his, the time that he wrote this was populated by these three guys and he makes note of the fact that Ham is the father of Canaan, who was the father of all the giants that the spies just saw in the land. And when you look at every single post-flood giant, every one of them without exception, they all trace back to the people of Genesis 10, 6 through 20, with no mention of angels anywhere. So, you know, when I started out in this research, like everybody else, I thought, well, of course, you know, angels mate with women, you get Nephilim, so that must have been how they got after the flood also. There must have been a multiple incursion. But I was raised to believe that you need a minimum of two scriptures as to you, need two confirming witnesses, two or three, to establish a matter. So you can't base any doctrine on just one verse. You need to have a confirming verse to you know uh, to elaborate on it. And when I looked for a confirming witness to Genesis, the usual assumption of Genesis six four in the phrase and also after that, I couldn't find it anywhere. In fact, I found things that outright contradicted it, uh, like the Amorites. The Amorites are mentioned over eighty times in the Bible. Uh, Amos 2.9 describes the Amorites as tall as cedar trees. These are big dudes. A cedar tree gets to 36 feet tall, a small cedar tree. The cedars of Lebanon got to 150 feet tall. (laughs) So I'm going, okay, well, even a 36-footer would make a six-footer feel like a grasshopper by comparison. Where did the Amorites come from? They came from Canaan, son of Ham, who stepped out the ark with no mention of angels anywhere. The Philistines are mentioned over 200 times, and we know of at least uh, five giants of the Philistines, the giant and Gath and Goliath and his four brothers, right? Um, Well, the Philistines come from Kaphtor, son of Mitzrayim, son of Ham, who stepped off the ark with no mention of angels anywhere in the picture. So I'm going, well, if I just let the Bible speak for itself without using what's called eisegesis, if you went to seminary, you know what eisegesis is. Eisegesis is where you insert your own ideas into the text to come up with a conclusion versus exegesis, where you just let the scripture speak for itself, um, if I was to not use eisegesis and just use exegesis, then the Bible tells me exactly where the giants came
2: from. And wait, wait, wait. You, you mean to interpret the Bible the way it was meant to be interpreted? That's
1: crazy. I know. I know. I'm, I'm a heretic. <laughs> but it, that's just... <laughs>
2: Rob, Rob, you need you need to calm down, okay? Man man knows best. He knows. Yeah. This. No, I'm just
1: kidding. Sorry. Yeah, Well, it's gotten me in a lot of trouble with some of these other speakers because they're so adamant that it's multiple incursions. And I'm like, well, give me a confirming witness and Maybe you'll have a case, but it was funny because. Uh, do you know who Derek Gilbert is? Yeah, um, we. Uh, I was. It was Ellie Marzulli Doug Hamp, and myself on a, a kind of a roundtable discussion with Derek Gilbert uh, moderating, and it was a Q and A with the audience. We were at this big conference in Branson, Missouri. About a thousand people there, and the audience is just throwing questions at us, and we're doing the best we can to answer them. Well. It was a two-hour session, and L.A. could only stay for the first half of it. So as we were going to the break after the first hour, L.A. like halfway off the stage. He's just about to step down when Derek says, Well, when we come back from the break, we're going to adjust the, address the question. If the Nephilim were destroyed in the flood, how did they come back after the flood? After the break. <laughs> and, like, and L.A. knows my position on this. And he's like halfway off the stage. He turns around and like, Oh, man, and Derek's like, well, you can stay, man. He's like, oh, I got to go. So L.A. had to leave, and Doug, who also believed the same way as L.A., looked at me, I looked at him, I'm like, all right, well, here we go. We took a little 10-minute break, we came back, and we just went at it for an hour. It was an hour-long debate uh, on, on this issue. And um, it went really well. I thought it was it was a great time. And, you know, he argued his position and I argued my position, Um, unfortunately for him, all he had was Genesis 6-4. And I'm throwing out, you know, all kinds of scriptures from the Torah and, you know, all these references or all these post-flood guys go back to the same guys in Genesis 10. And again, Genesis 9, 18, and 19 is a smoking gun, in my opinion. So that begs the question then, okay, what is Moses referring to when he said and also after that? Well, and this is where I'm going to just say something with a tongue-in-cheek I'm not meaning to be mean or anything like that, but I'm going to just say that a lot of these other Nephilim multiple incursion guys are hypocrites. And I say that with tongue-in-cheek. And the reason I say that is because all of these guys are using the Book of Enoch. Everybody uses Enoch to describe the 200 watcher-class angels that landed on Mount Hermon in the days of Jared. Everybody that you ever hear ever make any of those statements, they're getting it from the Book of Enoch because that's where that information can be found. But they're ignoring the testimony of Enoch when it tells you point blank in, in Enoch chapter 68 uh, where Michael the mighty—there's nobody tougher than Mike, Michael other than the Godhead. Michael's the one that takes out Satan, you know? Um, it's like, okay, Michael the mighty archangel himself says—and I'm paraphrasing—wow, look at the severe judgment that's taking place on the, on the watchers for doing what they did. Man, no one's ever going to do that again he says he is gripped with terror <laughs> michael is gripped with abject terror at what he's seeing happening to the judgment the judgment that's happening on the guys that did mate with women and he's saying no one's ever going to do that again and then there's the animal apocalypse dream later in the book of enoch where it gives you the whole history of the world from adam to the millennial reign of christ and there's no mention of of and it uses allegorical terms with animals no mention of of, of another angel incursion. So I'm like, well, guys, if you're going to use Enoch for your thesis, you can't ignore what Enoch says what it absolutely refutes the idea of a multiple incursion. Then when you look at Joshua and Jubilees, now these three books, Joshua, Jubilees, and Enoch are what I call the biblically endorsed extra-biblical texts, and they're all synchronized because they say the same, they tell the same story in the same chronological order of events that we find in Genesis. But each one gives a little bit more detail, where one leaves off, the other picks up the slack. And Joshua explains uh, what happens in Joshua 4.18, that men began to blend animals with humans, blending animals, transhumanisms, uh, the animal-human hybrids. And this is what led to the corruption of all flesh that we read about in Genesis 6.12, where it says, earth and all flesh have become corrupted. Joshua gives you an elaborate a uh, explanation for how all flesh became corrupted It became corrupted through transhumanism second witness Jubilee 724 but Jubilee 7 is a recap It's after the flood and Noah is giving a recap of why the flood happened in the first place and he tells a story about the angels mating with women tells about the judgment of the watchers for doing that and the death of the first-generation nephilim and then it says and after this the after this of Jubilee 7.24 is the after that of Genesis 6.4. And it talks about in a pre-flood context, men began to sin against the birds and the reptiles and the animals and blend themselves together and provoke the Lord. So uh, I think I'm using the text, using exegesis exegesis to show you, that the after that of Genesis six four is entirely in a pre-flood context, backed up by Jubilees seven twenty four, Joshua four eighteen, uh, and what it's telling you is that there was a return of the Nephilim before the flood. Everybody talks about the return of the Nephilim after the flood, but the the days of Jared is twelve hundred years before the flood. That's when angels mounted. On, that's when they landed on Mount Hermon, and they mated with women. Uh, First Enoch chapter ten tells you that the first-generation Nephilim were to kill each other off in a massive civil war that the Greeks later stylized into what became known as the Clash of the Titans, So, and that they would only live for 500 years. So they land on Mount Hermon 1,200 years before the Flood, first-generation Nephilim kill each other off within 500 years. That still leaves 700 years left, so you have the first-generation Nephilim are dead, The Watchers, their parents, are are judge-bound and buried shortly after seeing their kids kill each other off. And then Enoch is raptured, and then uh, uh, Noah is born, and there's 600 years left to go until the Flood happens. So you're like, well, okay, what got God so mad that he wiped out the whole world with the Flood, you know, if, if all that stuff was dealt with 700 years before the Flood? Well, what happened in the last 120 years leading up to the Flood in the latter days of Methuselah was the transhumanism uh that we're seeing today. It was happening then. They started creating animal human hybrids, and this brought back a return of the Nephilim before the flood, and it gotten so bad that literally all flesh, it says, had become corrupted, with the exception given in Genesis uh, 6, of Noah, his and I believe uh, his three sons uh being genetically pure. That's the exception. But then you read in verse 18 that the three sons have three all of a sudden have now have three wives. Well, if Noah and his wife were genetically pure, that means Shem, Ham, and Japheth were all genetically pure. But then all flesh became corrupted. And verse eighteen follows verse twelve, so I began to wonder: Could the three wives fall into the category of all flesh becoming corrupted? If all means all, and when I looked in the Book of Joshua, I found it. Noah didn't pick the three wives for the three sons until 7 days before the flood, the same day Methuselah died. So you had a a funeral and a wedding on the same day. And you'll note that none of the wives' brothers or sisters or parents made it on the ark. So Right there, I've got a really good candidate for a plausible explanation for how the corruption of flesh continued with the Nephilim after the flood, but I think Genesis 9, 18, and 19, and Genesis 10, 6 through 20 in particular, knocked the home run, slam dunk, and that explains why later in the Torah, where, you know, in the conquest of land, you have warfare, and men are killed in warfare, but in, in general rules of war, they could take the women and children and animals as spoils of war. And you saw that they did that every now and then, but it would be like it's like God would say, "Okay, when you go over here, you can you know have your warfare and take the women, children, and animals as spoils well of war." However, when you go over here, you've got to kill the women, kill the children, kill the animals, wipe out everything. And you're like, okay, so either God is you know prejudiced, schizophrenic, and it's a random acts of genocide, or He's got a legitimate reason for saying, okay, you can spare the women and children over here, but over here you've got to utterly destroy everything. And when you look at he and, and it tells you who they are, namely the, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites. Well, those are all Nephilim offspring. Those are all giants. And that's why he said, utterly ki- wipe them out. And when you realize that, all of a sudden you realize, no, God's not this crazy schizophrenic genocidal maniac. He's actually doing this out of love for his real, true human creation, he's trying to spare us from the abominations. And that was a huge epiphany moment for me, to understanding the Old Testament. But as I started to write about this and talk about this and do seminars and DVDs, I started getting emails. I get them weekly, practically, uh, from former atheists and agnostics that have turned their life over to Christ because I broke down that wall that they put up in the first place that made them an atheist and an agnostic.
0: Well, yeah, you know, I just real quick, if I can interject, um, my, uh, my mom, like, I don't, I'm not on Facebook, but she is, and my cousin, he's, he's like a, a Christian blogger, and, you know, it's kind of the health and wealth kind of gospel type deal, but anyway, he was posting something on Facebook, and one of his followers, like, commented, and it was talking about, like, basically how God wasn't, um, you know God God doesn't want us to, to kill people or God God. God wouldn't want people to get wiped out or I, I don't remember the whole like uh, context of what he was saying but my mom at one point had had pointed out those scriptures of like you know well there was a time when God did want to wipe out a bunch of people you know yeah. and and he's like well that's not my God like, yeah <laughs> this is like a believer it's like well did you have you read the Bible I mean you know, there was a time when, you know, of course, this is all contextual with what was said. I mean, but still, I mean, there, I think a lot of Christians do are repelled by those texts. Yeah,
1: they don't have a ready defense. They, without understanding Genesis 6, those are the ones you hope
2: nobody reads. Yeah, it kind of, it, it really is. Um, a question about the, the re- return, which, by the way, I, I agree with your theory, no second incursion um, of angels. Anyway, yeah. Um, uh, a question though: We have in Enoch um, before the flood the corruption involved flesh, like we've we've just talked about. Um, did that happen again? Do you think after the flood, like animal human yeah, yeah, mixing I DNA? Yeah, I believe it. did.
1: Um, <clears throat> and I, and I believe Nimrod was no, the, the, descript- the first to do it. Um, now, let me address the Canaanite issue first. I think that, um, I mean, clearly they're giants. I mean, the, those are the ites that you're always seeing, and those are the ones that the Israelites encountered in the land. And the, the Amos nine says these guys got really huge. Well, with no mention of angels anywhere, and Amorites coming from Canaan, son of Ham, you only, uh, the only plausible explanation that I could find anyway is that the, the, the genetics for that had to have come through the wife. Now, if that's what happened, and you know, it's conjecture on my part, but it's the best working theory that I have at the moment, um, th- then if, if we have to reckon with the idea that God planned for giants to be on the other side of the flood, no matter what you believe. Whether you believe it's multiple incursions or genetic carryover, th- we end up with the same net result. Giants are after the flood. So that was always apparently in the plan of God. But when I did what, do you know what a Punnett square is? Uh,
2: well, I've heard, I've heard you and others explain it, yes.
1: Yeah, it's just, a, it's a tool in biology that you use to try to determine the genetic odds of, of a trait being passed along. So like if you had a genetic trait and your wife didn't, what would the odds be that your offspring would end up with that genetic trait, you know? Um, and basically, you know, women have two X chromosomes and a man has an X and a Y chromosome. And you can only get a Y uh, through b- your father. It's it's passed on through heredity. You know, you can only inherit it from your father. And every single man on this planet has a Y chromosome that they got from a father, from a father, from a father, all, going all the way back to Adam, who was given it by God. Okay. Um, now that's that's important because Paul says that through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. So and then the second Adam came, but he didn't have a Y chromosome given to him by a human man. His Y didn't come from Joseph. His Y came from his father. So he's, that's why he's the second Adam, uh, and that's why he was the one to redeem us. Okay, so um, th- my thesis allows for every human being on this planet to be redeemable. If you believe in the multiple incursion theory, then that means you have non-redeemable Y chromosomes repeatedly being inserted into the human genome. And there could be people right around us right now, you for all we know, me. You know, uh, if you look back in our ancestry, there's all kinds of wacky stuff going on in Europe.
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm not doing so hot in the descendant lineage there, so.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, okay, if you're the offspring of a a non-redeemable Y chromosome Nephilim, well, sorry buddy, but you're toast,
2: you know? Um, right, and uh, then if you want to carry that logic if if that is possible, why then would Christ command you to go to every corner of the earth, yeah, if not every corner of the earth was redeemable
1: and he also said in mark, uh take this gospel to every creature, and that's a really fascinating study. There's a guy named John Darnell who wrote a book by that title gospel to every dot 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 creature question mark um And I'll just leave it at that. It's a a fascinating book. If if people are interested in the subject of the Nephilim and whether or not they are redeemable, uh, that is a a book I highly recommend you check out. Now, in my thesis, there there are no tainted Y chromosomes, but if you have a, let's say, a a 50-50 hybrid uh, corrupted flesh female, then she can theoretically have one good X chromosome and one corrupted. X chromosome. Well if that's the case then when you do a Punnett square you see that you have a 50-50 chance of having either a 100 percent normal human female or male, because if she contributes her good X and uh, the man contributes his good X, you get a normal female. Good X, good Y, normal male. Or if she contributes her bad X chromosome and the man a good X, you get a 50-50 hybrid female. You see how that works? Or male. So, um, and when you look at the offspring of the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, you see how the odds kind of play out uh, in interesting ways. And uh, scripture says that the sins of the father are passed down to what? Third and fourth generations. Uh, So it's genetic. Uh, You know, a spiritual predisposition can be passed down genetically. Well, uh, you know, we know the same thing with
2: genetic traits also. So. Say again. The sin nature, our uh, our fallen state, is passed genetically.
1: Absolutely. And who do we see sinning right off the bat uh, after the after the flood? Ham, he's doing something in, in the tent there with his dad or with his mom, as the case may be. Um, and yeah. I mean, when you when it talks about the nakedness of a father, the, the Le- Le- Leviticus talks about that as an idiom
2: uh, for the the the. Oh, okay, yes, I know what you're talking about. Wow, okay.
1: Yeah, so the nakedness of the father is the mother. Um, certainly that's one way you can look at it. I mean, it talks about that, that you should not, you should never have sex with your mother because it is the nakedness of your father. Uh, this is mentioned as a prohibition in the book of Leviticus. So I think that, you know, Ham may have done something with his mom— um, you know, others think that it may have been something homosexual with his dad. I, you know, whatever, he, he's doing something wrong. Um, but it's interesting that Noah doesn't curse his son, who's clearly the one doing something wrong. He rather curses his grandson, uh... Canaan. And you know, it talks about the sins of the father being per- passed down to the third and fourth generation. So, uh, you know, my spec—this is pure speculation on my part. I acknowledge that—is that if. Canaan is there to be cursed. I mean, Noah cursed Canaan. It means he had to be there for him to curse him, Uh, which means he was either born on the Ark or very shortly after they got off the Ark Um, because they were on the Ark for about a year. So uh, my feeling, my speculation is that Canaan may have had six fingers and six toes, maybe maybe double rows of teeth. Why? Well, because his offspring did, you know, uh, when you when you look at the, the the Philistines and later generation giants, where did they get those genetic traits? They had to get them from somewhere. So um, you know that's my speculation. So if if Ham's first child comes out as a Nephilim, and you know they're looking at like, oh boy, here we go again. You know th- this whole flood thing happened because of this stuff. Um, that maybe the, uh, Ham may have tried to do the same logic that Lot's daughters did with Lot. You know, I mean, what uh, look. Shem and his brother, they have daughters, they have wives, he can't go for them, and he's thinking, well, my wife's producing six-fingered, six-toes you know, abominations, well, maybe I'll try to have offspring with my mother, because I know my mother's pure. Uh, it's pure speculation on my part, I acknowledge that. Um, and I, and if, if that is true, then I su- suspect that Put may have been the offspring of that potential union. Put's name means uh, infirmity so you know through incest he may have been a, a product you know of of incest and has been uh, born with some kind of infirmity again pure speculation um but at least with this theory uh, of the wives you have the potential of having still even though the wife may have been corrupted and this is not through angel human hybridization this is corruption through animal human hybridization which I believe brings on demonization, and in Enoch chapter fifteen tells you where demons come from.
2: Right. I was gonna. I was gonna ask you actually about that.
1: Yeah, they come from the dis. Well, Enoch tells you that a demon is a disembodied spirit of a of an angel human
2: hybrid of a nephilim. Nep- yeah.
1: Yeah, of an angel human hybrid nephilim. They're, oh,
2: they're, right. Because, because nephilim is a broader.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is something else maybe we need to talk about. A lot of people think a nephilim is just exclusively the offspring of angels and humans. But Numbers 13.33 contradicts that idea when it tells you that these were Nephilim that came from other Nephilim. So, and specifically the Anakim. The Anakim were the offspring of Anak, who was an offspring of Arba, who was an Amorite, son of Canaan, son of Ham, and stepped off the ark. So, you can clearly have Nephilim from other Nephilim. You can have Nephilim from angels mating with humans. And I believe you could also have Nephilim through the creation of am- animal-human
2: abominations. Uh, I think you had actually expanded the definition one time to include any corruption yeah, of, God, so, yeah. of, of the creation, yeah. right?
1: Correct. Uh, basically, that, I, I defined it as that which has fallen from its original state that God created it to be. So by that loose definition, uh, GMO food would be Nephilim because it has been corrupted from the original creation that God made it to be. Um, and, and, and this is something that has caused me a, 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 a fair amount of concern, uh, not only for health reasons, but for the fact that before the women of Enoch were able to get pregnant, the angels first taught them to mess around with roots and with food. Yeah, they'd started genetic modification with food before the women were able to conceive and bear giants. So, you know, God put reproductive barriers in place. You know, a cat can't mate with a dog and produce offspring. It's not going to happen. There are species barriers that are in place. But if you can change or modify or tear down those barriers through some sort of dietary or, or other genetic manipulation, then, you know, th- that sort of thing may be possible. And that's what's happening today is, you know, scientists have realized, well, they can do gene splicing and all kinds of wacky stuff uh, to create animal-human hybrids today. And I believe all that is is a fulfillment of Yeshua's prophecy in Matthew twenty-four thirty-seven, where he said that the, as it was in the days of Noah, so it would be at the coming of the Son of Man. And in the days of Noah, we've just established, at least in the last 120 years of Noah's life, according to Genesis that all flesh became corrupted through animal-human hybridization. And I believe, this is a working theory that I have in that regard, is that Genesis 6.3, I've heard all kinds of crazy interpretations of Genesis 6.3 where people say, well, see, we have 120 jubilees, that equals 6,000 years. Well, yeah, the math works out, but that's not what Genesis 6.3 is talking about. It says nothing about jubilees. Uh, well man's age is capped at 120 years see Moses died at 120 well there have been people that have passed 120 uh, even in our day I think 126 is the current record um, that's not I mean and David says that man's age is 70 80th by strength so if you want to go with that argument uh, that's not what it's talking about either Genesis 6 3 is saying that man is flesh well he's been flesh since the garden so what's the big deal about that and he says that my spirit would no longer dwell with man for his days shall be 120 years. Well, what's he saying there? I, I believe he's saying that he created our body, the human body, in his image and his likeness as a house, a host for his spirit to dwell in. You know, when, when we accept Yeshua as our savior, we believe the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells us, right? Paul tells us that our body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. Well, but if you corrupt this temple such that his spirit doesn't want to hang out there anymore well then you've just created a vacancy for another spirit to go into and so it's my working thesis right now i believe that what they were doing when they were creating animal human hybridization in the pre-flood world in the last 120 years leading up to the flood basically god was saying if they don't stop doing this i'm not going to be able to dwell with man anymore you better knock it off because see you can't it's Oh! Moses became a preacher of righteousness and uh, of repentance, right? Well, look, my last name's Skiba. I'm Polish. I can't repent of that. Uh, You're you're born whatever nationality you're born. You can't repent of being born French, Polish, Spanish, whatever. So how could you repent of being born an angel-human hybrid? You can't. So him preaching repentance for 120 years makes no sense at all if it was about angel-human hybridization. Whereas it makes total sense that you could repent if you were genetically modifying yourself by blending yourself because you wanted to be Spider-Man or Wolverine or whatever, uh, because you thought it was cool to have you know added senses or abilities that you didn't have before through transhumanism. You can repent of that, you can stop that. But if you don't stop that, and I believe that God was saying, looking forward and saying, they've got 120 years, if they keep going this route, no flesh would be saved.
2: Yeah. well wow, that just dawned on me as you were saying so he's not so then what you're, what you're proposing is he's not saying look man can't live past 120 anymore what he's saying is look i'm gonna give you another 120 years you gotta knock uh, it off uh, or continue uh, it yeah exactly period that's exactly right and hey okay. and within those
1: 120 years man could have stopped what they were doing um but clearly they didn't because Genesis 6.12 said all flesh, with the exception of the prior verses that established Noah and his three sons and his wife, had become corrupted. And, and you know, I think that corruption took on all kinds of different sh- shapes and sizes and forms and whatnot. I mean, you have the centaurs, the minotaurs, the, you know, satyrs and stuff of Greek mythology and other myth. Uh, Egyptians and others have the same thing. Uh, so did the Hittites um you had an animal human hybridization but then you also have the strange anomalies like the cone heads
2: um yeah and, and peruvian and even egyptian they're kind of drawn that way aren't they
1: well yeah see this is where you know i i love la marzulli uh, i consider him a friend and, and somebody i enjoy spending time with but we disagree uh, on this area and he's done some great work on the conehead skulls in peru Uh, He's been down there a number of times and and doing all kinds of really good research out there. I just disagree with his premise. His premise is that the coneheads that we see like in Peru and and elsewhere are are the result of uh, multiple incursions and the devil coming and continuing to tinker with the genome. Well, uh, you can trace the coneheads pretty far back. Um, I mean, the the Peruvian ones are only about 1,000 years old. But you could go back to Akhnaten and Nefertiti, very famous Egyptian uh, royalty who had cone heads. Well, the Egyptians come from Mitzrayim, son of Ham, who stepped off the ark with no mention of angels anywhere. So I'm like, well, I mean, if the cone heads can be traced back to ancient Egypt and the ancient Egyptians can be traced back to a son of Ham, what need do I have of looking for angels popping in and out of the picture when these genetic traits could have simply been just passed off? passed along you know
2: uh, right and so um may, another question sorry if that's okay
1: i was just to conclude by saying you may have some that manifest as giants some that manifest with six fingers six toes double rows of teeth some that manifest uh as animal human hybrids uh some that manifest with cone heads i mean we, when you mess with the human genome you're an animal genome you're messing with on and off switches you're messing with codes and those codes can have uh, unknown results. I mean, we don't really know what we're doing when we're doing this stuff um, that have ramifications you know, in, in the offspring and will continue to perpetuate that way. And that's why I believe Yeshua said in the last days that uh, except those days be shortened, no flesh would be saved. Because, why? Because we're doing the exact same thing today that was taking place in the last 120 years of Noah's, uh, are leading up to the flood, the last 120 years leading up to the flood. We're there. there.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, you kind of just answered the question, really. Okay. Um, I, I was going to reference, you know, um, you've brought up before in one of your presentations, it might've been in your Archon Invasion presentations, actually. Um, the Ligers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how they've, re- by breeding them, uh, the, the male with the female, yeah. they've removed the growth inhibitor gene. Um, but you brought up an interesting point that uh, when before the angels mated with the women, they basically changed their diet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my question was, after the flood, do you think it's possible through dietary means that what they did was basically remove their growth inhibitor gene or expand it? Well, um... Or was all that just contained in the X chromosome?
1: Yeah, that's where I would go with it. The, the Liger example is a perfect. This is what I talk about: empirical scientific research. I mean, where, where you have empirical evidence. You know, when, whenever you develop a hypothesis, a theory, or whatever, you've got to be able to test it. And you can't test angels mating with women. I mean, there's nothing that we can test on that. I mean, you know, really. But, well, yeah. I mean, but I can. I can use, you know, um, the scientific method with—the liger is a perfect example because, uh, as you're talking about, they, they realized that the growth inhibitor gene, that little on-and-off switch that tells a, a creature when to stop growing, existed in the female lion and in the male tiger. So when you mate a female lion with a, uh, a male tiger, you get a, a, what's called a tigon. Now, a tigon is, you know, it's a hybrid, but it's, it's, it grows to about the same size as a lion or a tiger. But when you switch it and you get a male lion with a female tiger, neither one of which have the growth inhibitor gene, well, you get a liger. And the liger doesn't have the on-off switch. It doesn't have the code. It's either missing or turned off. Um, and so that thing just keeps growing until it dies. So right there, we have Solid evidence that we can look at, empirical evidence that we can look at, and, and explain how gigantism can take place. And this is not the type of gigantism that you know, like a pituitary gland, you know, glandular issue, where we have people, Robert Wadlow and others, that that have grown to you know pretty decent sizes, but they always they died young and had health issues and frail bones and problems. Um, th- that's a different type of gigantism. Um, the giants of the Bible like Aga Bashan. These guys didn't have you know bone deformity problems and you know die young. These guys were warriors. They were strong, proportionate and the Indians of America, the Native Americans talk about uh, giants that would run and grab a buffalo and you know in its arms while it's running and just you know eat the thing or whatever. These are strong and powerful beings. Well, all you need to do is turn off the growth inhibitor gene to get one of those guys. Um, and so, could the women that got on the ark have either had turned off their growth inhibitor gene through some th- sort of hybridization, or uh, had it removed? I don't know, but all I know is they're offering. At least some of them became giants. Um, and so, you know, genetics seems to, and specifically the science of epigenetics, I think, is uh, really helpful in understanding how these things uh could have been possible. But I think there's an interesting story in I think it's Jubilees chapter eight that describes a son of our Faxad, um named nam not Canaan, but K-Nam. k-nam is spelled differently. He uh, it says that he stumbled across some ancient writings of the Watchers from before the flood. He found a tablet or something that had writings of the Watchers on it. And it says he sinned because of it and he hid it away from Noah. That's about all the information we get. Well, um, he is a son of, he's a grandson of Shem. So Shem had Arfaxad who had Canaan. Well, that makes him a first cousin of Nimrod because Ham, Shem's brother Ham, had Cush who had Nimrod. So that makes uh, Canaan and Nimrod first cousins. And my theory is that Nimrod's looking at his other cousins, the Canaanites, who are growing to be giants, and he might have wanted to be one, you know. And here's Canaan walking around with this secret knowledge from the watchers from before the flood that may have had the genetic um, formula for making that possible. So uh, that's how I believe it perpetuated, uh, other than genetically, that that the hybridization process continued— after the flood. Because you certainly have examples of animal-human hybrids very prominent in the mythologies of the world after the flood, specifically in that of the Greeks. And what I find interesting about that is Kaphtor is the father of the Philistines, from whom we know of a number of giants, namely Goliath and his brothers, that came from him. Well, Kaphtor settled the island of Crete. And Crete is where all of Greek mythology originates from. So you're like, oh, You know, and of course, in the Greek mythology, you have the Minotaur, you have the Centaurs, you have the Satyrs. You know, you've you've got these animal-human hybrids. So, I believe it continued after the flood. um, The the scientific experimentation, probably most likely through the sons of Ham. Not all of them were bad, though. I mean, Ham had some normal offspring too. So, uh, you know, I don't want anybody to think that Ham's offspring are all bad. There's very specific ones that are, and also Japheth. J-Peth, um, and I didn't find this in scripture. I found this when I looked into the historical record of um, Magog, Gog, Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog in the historical record are unanimously understood to have been giants. In fact, I was a missionary in China, in Wuhan, China. And w- while I was in China, I got to stand on the Great Wall of China, spend some time there, and come to understand, realize that the Great Wall of China was originally known as the Ramparts, of Gog and Magog. Well, if you've ever seen the Great Wall of China, this thing is huge. I mean, you're like a little dot standing on this thing. I mean it is like serious overkill if you're just trying to keep out six foot tall invaders. <laughs> <laughs> but oh yeah. I mean it's just it is is huge and very long. I mean this thing goes and and they put a lot of effort. I mean this goes through mountain ranges. Um it doesn't make sense if you're trying to keep out six-foot Mongols or something, you know. But if you're trying to keep out giant invaders of Gog and Magog, well, a big wall like that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, so you have evidence of giants also in Japheth. Now, I was not able to find any evidence of giants so far, anyway, in any of the offspring of Shem, um, and, and that may make sense, although it is intriguing to me that this character of Canaan is missing from the uh, the King James Table of Nations. You go right from Arfaxad to—I um, uh, forgot who the guy is, Selah or somebody—but um, in the Septuagint, he's included. Uh, yeah, Asher, Arfaxad— He's he's in the Septuagint, I'm pretty sure. I'd have to I'd have to look it up. Um, so, but anyway, uh, it, it, here's something interesting. Also, the Hittites were very fond of carving in stone um, various depictions of animal-human chimera, like a human body with like a cat head or or a lion head. Uh, and I began to wonder about the lion men of Moab uh, that some of David's men were talking about because um, it talks about that they kill a lion. This one guy kills a lion, but then it also talks about him warring against the lion men of Moab. And you're like, what's up with that? Until you look in the ancient record and see actual depictions of animal-human chimera lion men. <laughs> um, and they also had this depiction of two lion men on, on the outside and two satyrs, half goat, half men, uh, in the middle of this particular Hittite depiction. And I was struck by that because when Adam, or excuse me, Abraham's wife, Sarah, died, it specifically tells us in Genesis, in several places, that he negotiated with an individual named Ephron of the Hittites, and it goes out of its way, Moses goes out of his way to repeat that phrase a few times, Ephron of the Hittites. Well, their name, Hittite, means the terrors, they're one of the the Israelites are always told to wipe out, so we know something's wrong with them. The the Hittites were fond of making numerous depictions in stone of animal-human chimera, probably self-portraits. And Ephron, his name means fawn-like. So it appears to me, looking at the Hebrew text, that Abraham was negotiating with a satyr for a burial plot for his wife. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's an interesting character, Abraham, because um, he he was revered, um, highly regarded by the Nephilim that he was living among. In fact, uh, the Genesis 14 war, I mean, you got to, most of us think of Abraham as this frail old guy with a long white beard. Well, you know, he probably, he probably became that way, eventually. But uh, I've started to think of Abraham more like Gerard Butler in the movie 300. <laughs> Because <laughs> that's nice. what he is man. Like you, you, the 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 Genesis 14 war, Josephus tells you point blank. This is an epic battle of giants the, against. The, these are giants warring against the offspring of giants, and the four kings are led by Amraphel, who is Nimrod, uh, and Keter Laamar, is Nimrod's right hand guy, Whoa. like a general Whoa. kind of guy. Uh, hold, hold on, hold
2: Amraphel Am- is yeah. Nimrod.
1: Correct. Yeah, um, the the Midrashes tell you that. I think Josephus mentions that, and I know Joshua tells you that. Joshua tells you. Probably. How many names does this guy have?
2: Oh, he's got at, at least seventy. Uh, oh, well, that makes sense. The languages. Is... Yeah,
1: because of Tower of Babel. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Oh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh. yeah. And by the way, I don't want to like sidetrack here, but I definitely want to make that that Tower of Babel connection to Nimrod here. Yeah.
1: Well, we can we can take a sidebar right now uh, on that. Um, you know, he, he he's creating this what I call an interdimensional portal because uh, it talks about he built a tower whose top might reach into heaven. Well, right off the bat, you know, it's not about height.
2: Yeah. Right. Because right.
1: if it's about height, they wouldn't have built it in the plains of Shinar in the valley. You know. If you're trying to build a tall building, you start on top of a mountain if you're trying to get into heaven. Um, uh, I believe it was more of a ziggurat-type structure, and the top of it was what we might had what we might call a stargate, uh, a way of bridging, renting the veil between this world and the spirit realm, which we know is right around us. You know, we got, was it Elijah, I think, or Elisha? I, forget, I always forget which one it was with his servant there, and he's freaking out, and he's like, Oh, Lord, open his eyes <laughs> so he can see. And you know, all of a sudden, the veil was rent, and you could see all the heavenly warriors that were around him. Um, you know, it's right within reach of us. We just haven't figured out how to do it yet. Although I think they're working on it with CERN. Um, I really believe CERN is is a
2: the beginning stage of recreation of the Tower of Babel. Were they were they reopening in 2015 or 2016? Because they shut down a few years ago to like revamp or something.
1: Yeah, I, I forget. Um, but I know they've had, they've had several attempts and they've had some interesting results, but they haven't achieved what they're looking for yet. And, um, I believe what they're looking for will be fulfilled in Isaiah chapter 13. Again, I would point people to the Septuagint. The Septuagint talks about a a world leader, probably Nimrod, in my opinion. It says, speak to the gate, ye ruler, beckon with a hand. Giants are coming to fulfill my wrath, screaming and at the same time, insulting. Um, I believe an interdimensional portal is going to be opened up by some world leader, probably the Antichrist, probably Nimrod, uh, and giants are coming through it. Um, but But what's interesting about the text in Genesis 11, it says the whole world is under this one guy, Nimrod, under his leadership, and then God looks at what they're doing and what they're attempting to do, and he says, nothing they imagine will be restrained from them. That's an extraordinary statement. Because it it seems to be saying that what they were attempting to do was at least theoretically possible. Um, And so he confounded the languages. But as a result of the confounding of the languages into 70 different people groups, and Joshua tells you there were 600,000 men living on the earth at the time, um, that they went away and speaking about the same guy. Now, in different languages, so now Nimrod becomes known by all sorts of different names, uh, predominantly, I would say by the name of uh, Osiris, uh, being the biggest name, um, but later Gilgamesh and uh, Apollo and a, and a few others orion um, but amrafel Amrafel may have been a title uh, also, um, and I forget what it means i 've
2: got it in my book though uh, see that that fascinates me that that was Nimrod because. Isn't it in Jasher where Nimrod required of Abraham's or Abram's father to kill Abram as a child?
1: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I just did a timeline chart. People could go to my website, uh, babylonrisingbooks.com, and click on the store tab, and then scroll down, and you'll see digital files and the timelines. I did an Abraham or uh, Abram-Nimrod timeline because they overlap. Uh, Nimrod was made king of the world uh, at age four 40 in 1948 a.m. the year since creation uh, and the same year Abraham was born Abram was born and uh, the uh, Terah Abram's father was like a, a a revered prince of Nimrod I mean he was like one of Nimrod's favorite dudes best buddies and uh, Nimrod is actually somewhat instrumental in naming Abram Abram which means blessed prince um but uh, Nimrod's sages had a vision of some sort. They saw, and they believed that the, the vision indicated that this offspring of Terra would be the death. Would mean the death of Nimrod. So Nimrod pulled a Herod, and uh, wanted to kill the you know the firstborn kind of deal. And uh, Nim, uh, Abram was then hidden away with Noah and Shem for I think thirty eight years, thirty eight thirty nine years, and he was hiding away with uh,
2: Noah and Shem when the Tower of Babel incident took place. I just, I got to say, the Bible uh, by itself, but when you throw the extra biblical text in there too with it, it's just like this awesome oh, it's heroic story again and again. It's like, you know, not that Abraham was the chosen one, but child is born undoing the king of the world. You know, he's whisked away and kept <laughs> safe, <laughs> and then he shows up on the battlefield. And is that what Nimrod realized who he was and like, oh crap, you know? <laughs> well, uh. This is what's crazy. Like the Genesis 14 war, the four kings beat the
1: five kings. Josephus says this is a war of giants. We already know Nimrod's a giant. So, um, and, and I believe the greatest archaeological find of all time is waiting for us in the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, Josephus tells us, was originally known as the Tar Pits. And that's what Genesis 14 talks about. The so four kings chased the five kings' armies worth of giants into the Tar Pits that later became known as the Dead Sea after Sodom and Gomorrah. Just, oh, So I'm thinking with all that salt and, and bitumen and everything there, that th- there's probably five armies worth of giants very well preserved uh, in the southwestern corner of the Dead Sea, in my opinion. I've run it by a few archaeologists, namely Dr. Judd Burton and uh, Dr. Aaron Judkins, and both of them were like, um, huh, yeah. I think you might be right. <laughs> maybe
2: maybe we should get on that.
1: Well, you know, if there's any wealthy, you know, people out there who want to finance a a dig, um, or at least a survey, um, I know several archaeologists that are ready and to go, and I'm, I'd like to go and document it. But um, so the four kings chase the five kings in the tarpids, and then the four kings take off with Lot and his family as part of the spoils of war that they took. Well, Abr- Abram goes, "Oh, I don't think so," and he. Grabs 317 guys, including Mamre, Aner, and Eshkel, who are Amorite giants. And these 318 guys forget 300 with Gerard Butler. This is the original 300, 318. Uh, and it says that Abram and his buddies slaughtered Keter La'amar, who was like, you know, again, General Patton of Amraphel, who's Nimrod. And you are like, dude, and, and, you know, he takes his family back, takes a lot back, you know. And then later, the the big showdown actually ends up happening with uh, uh, a young man named Esau, who is about 15 at the time, who ends up cutting off uh, Nimrod's head. He ambush- ambushes him.
2: How old was Nimrod at that time? Like 100 something? No, he's
1: uh, 215, I think.
2: Wow, my math was off. I, okay, uh, granted, I I did it once in my head for like two minutes.
1: Yeah, I I'd have to double check the timeline chart, but he's 200 and something at the time. Uh, Joshua tells you I think actually point blank how old he was, but yeah so uh and but what's interesting about that story, and that's crazy too, man. shoot, we got like five minutes left um that, I mean, you could go on forever on this stuff um uh Nimrod was said to have had the clothes that that God made for Adam and Eve that he clothed Adam and Eve with, and that they supposedly had some sort of mystical power or whatever and it's said that uh he had the the clothing apparently when Noah was it that got passed down to Noah and then when Noah was naked in the tent apparently Ham acquired the 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 clothing and passed that down through Cush who gave it to his son Nimrod and says that Nimrod used those to rule the world well after Esau cuts off his head in an ambush it says that he took the uh, cloak and uh and but I think that the cloak eventually made its way to uh, uh Elijah um and Oh, his mantle. His mantle, right, and that passed down Whoa. to Elisha, and I believe John the Baptist may have been the last one to have who have had it. Um, when you when you kind of try to track that through, but um, what's interesting about that is the, the whole kind of Jewish legend surrounding that got morphed and stolen by the Greeks, and that became the Golden Fleece uh, myth. Mm-hmm. Wow.
2: Okay, so crazy stuff, huh? Th- this this has been really great, Rob.
0: Um, this is awesome. Thank you for doing this with yep. us, man. Yeah,
2: I enjoyed it. Thank you. would Would it be would it be too much to ask if maybe in a <laughs> uh, another couple weeks we could kind of finish this conversation because we we wanted we have kind of covered the history of who Nimrod was. Now we want to talk about who has he been through history, what is his impact yeah, been yeah, sure. up until this day, and then then we'd really like to talk about the Beast Feast versus the Feasts and god's calendar and all all of those things
1: yeah for sure man let let's uh you yeah, know we can talk about this off air and figure out a time that'll work um yeah for sure
2: well then rob uh we're gonna ask you we ask mo- all of our guests uh if, would you close in uh, a prayer for this yeah absolutely father god we just thank you for your word um it is so
1: exciting and it is so full of amazing stories, but most of all, it is, it is filled with your love for your hum- humanity, for the creation that you created um, that fell in the garden, but your desire was to, to redeem us back to you. You sent your only son into the world um, to pay that price for sin that, that through him we may be reconciled back to you. Father, we thank you for the greatest story ever told um, and, and the privilege that we have to read it um, to to believe in it and to share it with others and talk about it and I pray that uh just in the time that we 've had uh, the last three hours or so on this broadcast that um we w- we blessed you first of all, father, we pray that the conversation was a blessing to you um but that it also has uh will minister to others, whether listening uh in the archive or whatever father we just uh pray that your word does not return void and that it goes out and and excites people to get into the scriptures to to see Uh, this great, amazing plan that you have uh, for us to spend eternity with you. And uh, we thank you once again for this opportunity in your son Yeshua's name. Amen.
2: Welcome back, everybody. All right, that was a a fun discussion. I love it. I can't wait for part two, man. (laughs) It it was great to go down on uh, a lot of these topics. Um, We got to spend some time talking about the Punnett Square and genetics, Uh, As you guys know, or if if you didn't know who Rob Skiba was before this, um, and you do know about the Nephilim, Rob sits at the outskirts, um, sorry, excuse me, Rob sits at the outskirts, he likes to call himself the fringe of the fringe, and as you heard in our episode, I would be classified as being a part of that, in the sense of most people accept the theory of multiple incursions, or that's the theory they put forth. I think Rob is correct. I don't think we have evidence for it. Um, I I don't believe the angels came down and mated with women again. And we can we can make the argument from the biblical text. But if we go to the the book of Enoch, it it actually I believe says that Michael and Gabriel looked on in horror or something along those lines at what had been done to the watchers okay look if the righteous angels of god we're talking about michael the defender of israel and gabriel the messenger the proclaimer look on at horror what is done to them like in fear do you do you really think that any of the guys who are already sitting on the opposite side of the fence on the opposing team are like hey that looks like a good idea let's do it i don't think so i agree with rob i don't think any other angel is going to sign up to do that again other than possible good old lucifer himself um Which I'm not sure, I don't think we covered this with Rob, Uh, maybe we did, but uh, I've heard Rob say before, and I've heard other people talk about it, and I I also agree with this, why is Lucifer locked up for a thousand years then released? I believe that that time, that confinement in um, Tartarus is the prescribed judgment, and I I may actually be quoting Rob here, um, for mating with uh, mankind for many with women. I, 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 I believe that, that that is the reason he's locked up and then released because he is going to mix his seed with man personally, And I believe that will be done with Antichrist and I also believe Antichrist will be Nimrod. And I don't know if we said it with Rob, I don't know how that will be done. That could be a clone. That could be the injection of his DNA. It maybe, Maybe it is just as simple as he, the, the, the demonoya, the demonic spirit that is Nimrod, possessing the man who is antichrist i i don't know
0: how it will work can i can i interject for a second go for it i know that dan uh thinks that the antichrist is going to be nimrod but or some manifestation or some manifestation i'm just saying i'm saying this for all the people out there who are on the fence i'm on the fence i don't know i don't feel like i have
2: sam is weaker
0: in his faith everyone it's okay Oh, snap. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Dan is by far a light years ahead of me on his biblical study, and I, I definitely am no expert on on these topics, especially with prophecy. But I am very intrigued by them. But I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, am just, I'm just kind of on the fence. I think it's a, it's a very interesting theory of Nimrod being. The Antichrist I don't
2: think Nimrod can be disproven which is why I stand by it so so very
0: strongly mm -hmm. however I will say I'm not saying that he isn't I'm just saying I don't know I would say though and um, I'm not holding tight to any theory at this moment because I'm trying to figure my own thing out yeah I'm trying to understand things for myself I
2: do want to say I think Chris White makes an excellent uh, case in his new book false Christ and uh, you do have to reconcile along with this, Lucifer mixing his seed and uh, you know Nimrod. You also have to reckon, though, the Antichrist will be accepted by the Jews as their Messiah. In order to do that, he has to prove lineage, which means he has to be a descendant of Judah. He has to be a Jew. So, I mean, there's while I stand by the Nimrod theory, you can't just toss it out of hand. I don't believe from my own research and from what I've seen, but uh, there are there are a lot of things. So there are some things that I'm on the fence about. I don't know how it will happen. Um, maybe the better way to say it is though I personally believe. Nimrod will in fact be the Antichrist. I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt he is definitely one of the seven heads mentioned in Revelation mm-hmm. and definitely the archetype. Yeah,
0: I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Definitely agree with that.
2: Maybe maybe that's a better way to say it. I, you know, definitively can but, say that.
0: But you know the reason why we do these episodes is because everybody has their own kind of I guess no. See, guys,
2: the real reason we do these episodes is Sam and I have all these arguments about what's right and what's not, (laughs) and I get the guests on here to prove them wrong.
0: I'm just kidding. I'm so kidding. Everyone, cut this out. No, no. I I just say it's it's nice to get different perspectives of what people people that have studied the word and and feel that this is the way that things are or going to be. And I think it takes a lot of guts to stand up and even just say what you think. And Mm -hmm. you don't present that as a theory without getting shot down as it is, because, I mean, most churches don't want to hear about this stuff anyway, Mm -hmm. (laughs) let alone like whatever your idea of that is, you know. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's just nice to have a forum like this where we can discuss this with people and not cut each other down about it and (laughs) just hear each other out. I mean, you
2: hear the bitterness in Sam's voice. I've been cutting him down this whole
0: outro. Yes. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. No, but uh, our next episode is going to be Nimrod 101 Part Two, mm-hmm. and which, uh, as as we said at the
2: end, there we're going to discuss. You know, we we discussed in this interview a bunch of stuff, but as far as Nimrod goes, who he was in the ancient world you know, what were his manifestations? How was he recognized by the different people groups, all that. And in ancient times, now what we want to talk about, what has his impact been on society to present day? Um, What effect is that having on us now? How do we handle and respond to that? Which, yes, is inevitably going to lead into a discussion of the holidays, the beast feasts, as Rob calls them, versus the prescribed feasts of God. And God's calendar, prophetic calendar, uh, as to those those feasts and so on and so forth. Um, I think we said it, but we'll just say it again. Sam and I do at this time with our family celebrate Christmas. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that won't change, um, and it doesn't
0: mean. And uh, it. Let's it, just it, save. Let's just save this for the next one because I. I know that. Well, no, I, I just I want to reference it real quick. All right, all right. Um. Yeah. So
2: you know, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that if you celebrate it, you're going to hell. If you know Christ, you know Christ, period. Okay? Um, it, you're not going to get kicked out for it. But we're, we're going to talk about this with Rob, and, you know, um, we'll probably end on some nerdy
0: note. Um, yeah. in, a, in other news, uh, as you await the next episode here with Rob Skiba, I just wanted to kind of give a shout-out to anybody who is at the Prophecy Forum in oh, Dublin, yes. Ohio. I, yep. Hi, had, guys. We had an amazing time. I mean— God, God really was moving at that conference. I mean, at least
2: if you haven't been to one of these conferences, guys, the, the best thing about these conferences is not going to hear the speakers. So some of the stuff, I mean, it is good. It's excellent. What I heard was great, but the real value in it, at least for me anyway, was sitting out in the hallway talking with Josh Peck, Basil and Gons, uh, Doug Hagman, Chris Putnam, uh, Putnam. Russ Isdard. Uh, Ru- I got to talk to Russ a little. Uh, Russ is really a busy guy at these conferences. He's he's always on the move, always helping people. Um, and you know, for all those guys, but for us especially, I think you you should um, remember him in prayer because that is it's a lot of work, and you could tell while he enjoys doing what he does, and he's a tool of the Lord. You there, it takes a, an energy toll on him. So yeah, I would just I would give a special lift up to Russ in your prayers maybe um especially this time of year there's a lot of uh coven and a call activity that goes on um between halloween and christmas time uh so
0: but and no then, the conference as a whole and, and even meeting some new faces that doug are coming Krieger. Oh, doug yeah Krieger. Doug, doug was dude, awesome so much energy he
2: is uh that guy thinks he's 19 i'm telling you he's
0: just and dan dan uh, duval oh, oh he's coming up here he's a young dude like Danny us Evolve. and
2: we are going to have him on the show at some point, guys. You, you're you going to love – just uh, just remember this, everyone. You'll understand when we get to Danny Duvall, spiritual beatdown, and Danny was doing
0: the beating. All right. So um, I don't think I told you about that. So, no, I think you did. Uh, Real quick, I mean, we can mention this in a coin toss, but I'll just say it right now. I can always edit it out. But when we were at that conference, you know, I've been saying to Dan
2: – I think actually this is an appropriate way to do it. You should do it now.
0: When we were at that conference, uh, I was saying to Dan, probably for like the last month, kind of joking with him, like, "Man, this year has just been. We've we've gotten to talk to pretty much everybody that was on our list." Sorry, yeah, that's that's obnoxious. <laughs> wow, <laughs> Einstein, that's my cat, everybody. <laughs> no, but anyway, we we're at, so we we're at the conference, and I've been saying to Dan, Dan, haven't I been saying to you for like the last month? You know. If he's we a quitter. If, he's a quitter. If we quitter could, <laughs> if we could talk to Kent Hovind, that would be like the icing on the cake. I feel like I could walk away from this podcast and let Dan just get a new co-host because that I don't know how you can come back from that. I mean Please everyone write in and tell him he's a fool. <laughs> but no, I mean I mean I've been joking around about it, but at the same time I always want to keep like I always want to make sure that I, I I know what where God wants me. So if God is telling me to back down from doing a podcast, which I don't think he is, mm-hmm. but I, I have to be open to giving up something that I love to make way for something else that maybe God is sending my way. I know that God is also putting more musical things on my on my plate right now too. Mm-hmm. So
2: real, know, real quick before we wrap this up, let's talk a little bit about what's going to be coming here with, with GPR and some of the things we're going to be doing.
0: Sure, but can we say what happened
2: yeah yeah oh yeah with ken i'm sorry okay. I'm just saying, yeah go ahead
0: yeah okay so i've been jo- joking around right dan like i've been saying hey you know if we if we talk to ken hovind that's my last episode <laughs> and well you know i think we were sitting in a ihop diner right the ihop restaurant that night yeah with dan duvall Basil and Guns, Audrey, my sister. Peter and, DeGarris. Yep. And we were all chilling, just talking about, you know, stuff. And I brought it up one more time to him. This is the first night of the conference, right? And I brought it up again to him. And oh, I and, uh, I think I even, like, said to Audrey, you know, I think that might be my last episode if we ever get to talk to Ken Hovind.
2: Well, I said, it's cool. I looked
0: at his sister, Sarah.
2: As soon as Sam's out, Sarah's in. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, so... The next day at the conference, we get an email from Ark from you know digging for the truth with Ark and Neo, and he turns out he got a he got a phone call from prison from Kent Hovind. and it was just like what he's like I'm gonna hook you guys up <laughs> you know he's <laughs> so now by now everybody you guys have heard we've started this whole series called coin tosses and right now. Kent Hovind and our friend Paul J. Hansen, they're in kind of some deep water right now legally, and uh, we would just ask that you...
2: Well, are they really in deep water, or are they being having their head shoved under three feet of water to drown them?
0: Well, oh, right. Well, either way, <laughs> they need some prayer. Is yeah. It's really, like, bottom line, if if you guys can just say a prayer for, for Paul Hansen and, and Kent Hovind, because they are certainly being persecuted right now, and uh kent's been being persecuted for a while but Mm -hmm. uh anyway uh, so that was like the first like whoa why would that happen you know during the conference you know it was it was totally a god thing again and during that from meeting all these different people uh i'll let dan talk about this but we have some plans for gpr for the future and i'm gonna let dan go ahead with that
2: yeah god uh god laid some things on our heart at that conference um we got to network. It was so awesome. I said to Basil and Gons, um I got to go to dinner with them and Doug Krieger and John Holler and Danny Duvall and um, uh, Peter DeGaris and Callie, uh, Just a whole a whole bunch of folks that are our regulars at the conference. Some are bloggers. Uh, some have their own ministries. You know, and sitting there talking with Basil and Gonz, I, I just stopped them in the middle of, I don't remember what we were talking about, and I said, guys, I just got to say, it's really weird, like, sitting here with you and hearing you, because you're not, and I pointed at my ear, like, where my ear, you know, my uh, earpiece would normally go, you're not, like, right here, like, in my ear anymore, it's just, it was so odd, because you're so used to hearing those voices, you know, from an mp3 player or a computer. And then, of course, Basil fashion, he turns over to me and puts his mouth, like, practically, not on my ear, but, like, you can feel his breath, and he goes, Dan, I'm in your ear. Dude,
0: dude, I just have to say, on a side tangent, meeting Basil was awesome. I mean, meeting Guns is awesome, too, but meeting Basil was, like, first off, I didn't picture Basil to look like that.
2: But we're not going to discuss what Basil really looks like Well,
0: we can't, yeah, we can't give you too many visuals, but all I'm going to say is Mitch Hedberg. He totally reminds me of Mitch Hedberg a little bit.
2: Oh my. So anyway, um yeah, it was just uh it, it was odd. But getting to uh and I didn't know like until like late the evening first night of conference about halfway through the first day that Josh Peck was there and he had a table set up, but I was like, Josh Peck, are you kidding me? So I, I went to go find him and introduce myself. I, I probably out of everyone there. I, I sat and talked with Josh for a good and his wife, Christine, awesome couple, by the way, just fantastic. And uh, we visited for probably five or six hours between the two days and then hanging out with Basil and Gans. My wife and I actually got to take Basil and Gans to the airport on um, Sunday. I uh, got to have a, a good kind of last chat with them. It, it was just an all-around really great time, an opportunity to meet some people face-to-face, um, kind of network, and God opened up a lot. So anyway, uh, through that, uh, we really got to get a heartbeat on where uh, a piece of this the, I don't want to call it the truth movement, but really where the, 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 this, this group of the prophecy movement is at and, and where people are at uh, that were coming to that conference. And uh, so we are, we are going to be doing a couple new things here at GPR, um, which is changing um, here. First of all, uh, I have wanted to for some time start blogging. Um, now, why my English and my not my English, my grammar
0: is atrocious. I mean, Sam, grammar or your your yes, your punctuation, your spelling, it it's pretty bad.
2: Which is really funny because you know they always told you in school if you're if you're a great reader if you're an avid reader you'll be a great speller and you'll be great at grammar. Here's the funny thing, I read a lot, I mean a lot.
0: It just doesn't stick.
2: I, I but I'm horrible at grammar but Sam Sam doesn't read a lot Sam can't stand to read Um uh, well
0: he's gotten I like to read articles but I, I don't I typically can't read a whole book because it's just I don't have the time I'm a very slow reader and that's part of it I wasn't an avid reader as a kid so it takes me a while to get through something mm-hmm. but anyway yeah I don't I don't read a whole lot of books.
2: Yeah, I guess, uh, and not, not a slam to Sam, if you were to compare, I would be considered an, an avid reader. Um, so someone who reads a lot, uh, not like Leonard Ulrich, um, had a conversation with him a few months ago and asked him, hey, Leonard, what are you reading right now? He said, well, I read five books this week, uh, one of which was Mark Flynn's. Oh, okay, and you absorb that. Um, you know, just like, <laughs> wow, okay, so now I'm a novice by comparison there. So, so anyway. Uh, the, the point is, I'm not good at grammar. Uh, but we've wanted to start, I've wanted to start blogging, uh, but I don't have the time to research or the time to write content consistently to have a blog. Um, and with the job, Sam and I work during the summer from the beginning of June to the end of August,
0: <laughs> count us out,
2: Not nothing, nothing. If you guys write us an email in that time, um, I'm sorry if we don't get back to you to like. September you'll be lucky
0: if you even get an episode out of us during that time we'll probably be doing coin tosses this summer <laughs> yeah.
2: um, it'll be it'll be something so anyway yeah it's it's a very busy time so uh, I wanted to do that for some time start a blog and uh, we're sitting there at IHOP actually that night and we're talking with Audrey uh, she's a consistent conference attender for the last three years she's been to like 16 conferences and uh, we're just talking and she wouldn't you know she likes to write and she's pretty good at it. But again, like me, she doesn't have the time or the ability to produce content on a consistent basis. Well, Sam gives me this look sitting there like, "Hmm." And I Sam was going I think another way with it, but in my mind just I just an idea kind of popped. Um, Well, Sam said something and I kind of ran with it and thought, hey, what if we created a blog panel or a community blog where we'd have five to seven writers uh, write, you know, whatever one, what's the Lord laying on your heart? What are you learning? But also we, we pick a topic, we research it, and then we start writing about that topic. Um, and what it would be is we'd all post under, you know, the God's Property blog name, whatever we choose, but we'd sign it with our individual author names. Uh, and Audrey really took to that idea. And uh, we've spoken with another blogger friend of ours. The truth is stranger than fiction. And um, uh, two more people we met at the conference. And right now, uh, if, if everyone's on board, which we're sorting out the details for this, uh, we're, we're going to be starting this. Uh, blog panel, uh, hopefully here launching at the first of January. Um, that's one thing. Uh, the Lord also really He laid on on my heart um, to start uh, using my gift of public speaking, um, preaching, if you will. So we are going to be releasing possibly around the beginning of March. If not, then the beginning of May, or it may be broken down sequentially. A four-part vidcast series that I will be doing, uh, discussing um, where do you go from here after your paradigm shift, right. um, basically. And th- that that topic is subject to, ch- or that uh, title is subject to change. Um, but it's it's we're going to be talking about um, where do you stand doctrinally? Where is the gospel land in all this? how do you vet the information you're learning and how do you talk to your friends, family, and church about what you're learning as best you can. Um,
0: and how do you pick your battles?
2: Right. Yeah. That'll be a part of that discussion. And then the fourth one plays into another aspect of what we're going to try to do. And th- this is, this is the big one for me. Um, it's going to take a lot of work. Uh, it's going to be get connected. What, what we found at this conference is like Audrey. There are a lot of people who want to get involved. They want to start doing something, but either they don't know what God wants them to do, or they do and they don't know how to do it. So we are going to create a network and a team here at GPR, which we will affectionately rename uh, GPM, God's Property Ministries. And um, GPR will be one of those ministries. The vidcast, the blog will be one of those um but the the network we're going to create is and the team is you'll write into us here and a team member will get in touch with you and uh, help you one if you don't if you know you god wants you to get involved but you don't know what to do we're gonna we're gonna do our very best to help determine help you determine what your spiritual gifts are according to the word help you seek that out we're going to do our best to get you connected with a local church that's going to hear you and help develop you Um, but also uh, we're going to get you in touch with people who are already doing what you feel god is calling you to do or where you're gifted in so you can be trained Discipled in doing it, start doing your own ministry, and then you can do the same thing for others. We're talking about discipleship here, guys. You know what the Bible talks about, um, and then. But again, if you come into it and you're like, "Hey, you know, I know God wants me to make a documentary film. Cool, man. I'm gonna put you in touch with maybe Justin Fall of Fourth Watch Radio, who's a new friend of ours, by the way. Justin, great guy. Shout out. Shout out to Justin there, and um, or Leonard Allrich or Rob Skiba or uh, D- Gonzo Shimura, you know, the goal is to try to find someone who's locally or regionally local to you who is doing what you want to do so you can actually maybe have the chance to meet them in person, discuss things,
0: uh, yeah, go not, on projects with them. And we're not saying we're specifically going to put you into oh, yeah, those we're people. Not, we're just we're talking yeah, about well, somebody I'm, I'm like that. Giving, yeah. Somebody like that that has that that skill set that's using it for the Lord, not necessarily those individual people.
2: Right, and we're 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 just using them as an example. One thing that I really want to see, I want to I, that I, I think is paramount to this network, and where where I'm going to start with it, I want to find and I want to create a network of people who are trained to handle spiritual warfare like Russ Dizdar does, because this is prevalent all across the board, and I think from what I'm finding God has people everywhere. So let's find out who those people are trained. And if you know, personally everyone, I think we should all be trained in how to handle that. That doesn't necessarily need to be our ministry, but we at the very least need to have a basic understanding of the spiritual warfare that goes in and around in our lives and around us. Um, and how it affects those things around us. So, um, mm-hmm. also, uh, get some people who are trained in creationism, doing presentations, on creation, how to debate, you know, basically anything you can think of ministry wise, we're going to try to, to put out there. So if you have an idea of a minister, maybe something you're interested in, but you're not sure how to get started, write us with that idea and I will make sure that we, I start looking for people to be part of the network who are doing what you're looking to do. And, but, you know, you may also be the kind of person, well, I think God wants to lead me to be a researcher, but I think he also wants me to start a podcast. Okay, cool. I'm going to connect you with so-and-so and this person here, and you may have to learn from two people. Um, and then there there is a fourth aspect to what we're going to be doing here, and I'll let Sam explain uh, the other thing that we're, we're starting here.
0: There's this other element to God's Property Ministries uh that i feel i can bring to the table uh, i'm the artsy dude in this whole thing i don't know I'm okay not... so
2: all those intro videos cool music that's sam well it,
0: it's it is what it is but I, Do you I see why he can't quit so so what i'm <laughs> going to be adding is first off I, I haven't decided for sure but it's it seems like it's going to end up being a record label so to speak i mean i don't know if you can really say record label in this day and age when mm-hmm. really I mean, come on, we're not gonna be putting out vinyl, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, you know what I mean. I want to do my music, and I, I'm, you know, and I'm f- linking up with people like Justin Fall and Destiny Lab and some other people. And Gons, you know, hopefully he and I will create something too in the future.
2: Truth is stranger than fiction.
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot of people that are musicians, and I want to get involved with that. And I think we need to raise the bar, so. Uh, I'd like to create a platform for to release music digitally, at least at a very low cost that is biblically sound and, and based off of scripture. Um, that's you know I, that's just something I feel compelled to do because uh, God gave me a gift in that. But I would also like to help release films and books mm-hmm. and I don't know. I don't know how far God wants to take it. And then I have another idea for a prison ministry, but. I don't really want to talk about that yet because mm-hmm. it's kind of in the developmental stages right now. It's a rocket idea though. Um if yeah, I mean so I have that idea but as as we go further with these coin tosses that mm-hmm.
2: these, that'll that'll develop in time. You'll you'll hear more about. Yeah, that.
0: yeah, that'll develop. But um for now we'll just, you know, God's Property Records or God's Property Media or whatever it ends up being mm-hmm. that's 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 my little thing that I'm going to be taking on, so.
2: And by by little guys, I'm I'm telling you I Uh, It is uncanny how many people are in this genre. And you guys probably listening have been involved with, or a lot of you have been involved with bands, music, sound on on some level. This, Sam says it's a little thing, this is going to be a big deal. And we've, you know, we've had... um... And and when I say a big deal, I don't mean like for us. Um, I think it's going to give a lot of you guys that are out there that are artists and musicians and want to be doing something for the Lord with that, um, Sam's gonna be able to provide you with a platform to do that and and that's our goal you know we we want to see the gospel go forward um, we want to help get the body functioning as the body
0: and we've gotten a lot of emails from graphic designers that are like hey, oh, yeah. hey hey do you need help Well, now this is a perfect time for you know to find you a place to plug in now mm-hmm. like that's we we've realized that even from just getting emails from people you know how can we help you guys plug into something so that's kind of, you know, something that the Lord has kind of been speaking to us about, and we're just going to let that develop. But uh, I guess for now, uh, we're going to have to wrap this up because that was a very long outro. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was.
2: I do I do want to say real quick, if you guys have ideas or questions about what we're going to be doing, or maybe you want to be part of the team here, uh, please write us at Radio at gmail.com, and we'll talk.
0: Yes. Just want to say, you know, again, keep, keep Kent Hovind in your prayers mm-hmm. and, uh, Paul Hanson, Paul Hanson and, and,
2: the, and their families
0: and their families. And if you can go donate to the legal fund, uh, I'm sure that they could use some, some funding for mm-hmm. what they're about to try to fight here. So, um, yeah, just prayers be with them and we will see you on the next episode with Mr. Rob Skiba and... You know, check us out on iTunes, Podomatic, GodsPropertyRadio.com, Revelations Radio Network. Stitcher. Stitcher, YouTube. Leave Leave us some love. Dude, we just had something happen on YouTube. That's okay.
2: You don't want to tell them? It's okay. Okay, cool. No big deal. All right. Anyway. All right, well, I think that wraps us up. So, until next time, guys. Don't buy into what the world is selling.
0: Thank
1: you for listening to God's Property Radio. We thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, don't buy into what the world is selling.
2: Think outside the cage.